Listening to Inside Out with Turner and Seth, and we got hot coffee all over. Yeah, Seth all just over me. Oh God, Seth had a rough morning. First of all, I, <coughs> I started periscoping when we got in, and he's making fun of me and telling me what a loser I am for periscoping and why do people do that. And then the great Scott Bernstein actually answers a question that Seth posed about Railroad Earth, right, Seth? Right, right. It's very totally, totally, totally. That's Hey Scotty B on Twitter, uh, Yum Blog, Jam Base, former guest of uh, our show, a guy who was quoted. People loved having on, uh, but a guy like you who was wrong about that jam. It wasn't the drill. It was a kazoo like thing. I got a couple people who told me that, but anyways, we won't get into that. He was right about the Lomboy reprise. He was right about just about everything, wasn't he? Yeah. But we're talking about Railroad Earth today, Seth. Don't railroad the conversation, Rob. Yes. uh, My experience with that band started actually when Todd Schaefer was the front man for a group called From Good Homes. I remember seeing them and being impressed, and then suddenly they were on tour with Rat Dog. And uh, I go back to them when uh, I was trying to get the Disco Biscuits to come to Tallahassee, Florida as a promoter, and they were being promoted by... Uh, the booking agent, Chris Kate, who the, anyone in the music business has probably gotten a call from Chris Kate years ago, and their answering machine, not their voicemail, their answering machine with him yelling. Okay, so anyways, the tour I'm talking about <laughs> was the tour during the middle of which Jerry died. So he, the, oh, from oh, Good Homes, That's why but that was here. great, that was a great aside, thank you for that. Um, from Good Homes, on tour with Rat Dog, and Jerry Garcia dies. I mean, can you imagine that? And I don't know if any of you know, but the, the tour, the night Jerry died, the tour was slated for Hampton Beach, New Hampshire. And when, whenever I interview Bobby, maybe on the show, maybe somewhere else, whenever, one thing we're going to... Rob. I know you love Bob Weir, but you ha- Rob has another show, folks. And, and, and yeah, but his... you make fun of how much I like him, so maybe I shouldn't... No, I, you, I'm going to make fun of you in front of him. This is my dream. Yeah, but when you do that, you wait till the end of the interview so you don't make him uncomfortable. No, no, no. I'll Get the uh... interview in first, then do your stupid shenanigans. Don't do like... I've, I've re-listened to the Peter Buck. Don't don't run him off like you did Peter Buck. Uh, he had to go to the bathroom. Right, that's what Kevin Kinney told you to make you not feel bad. Then Kevin was waiting outside of the bathroom for five minutes while he was in there, so... <sighs> Come on. Like, seriously, don't try, don't talk shit if you're not going to be back your shit. Go back and listen to it. Anyways, um, what were we talking about? Jerry. Oh, right. So they were in New Hampshire, and what I would ask Bobby is, is it true? I mean, I heard from, from Boston music circles, not through dead circles, 
that he had a flight and could easily have left and gone back to San Francisco that day. Huh. And that and that as hard as that gig was to play, that Weir stayed in town because he knew that, you know, there were people and there were there were people on tour with Rat Dog, not not legions like the dead, but there are people on tour with Rat Dog. And Jerry dies. You can't just have the the Jerry die shows canceled. And then I mean, it it was very wise, and uh, I don't know. It was the beginning of of understanding who Bob Weir really is to those of us who aren't in the dead inner circle, because he was always the one you'd poke fun at, and the rock star, and all that kind of stuff, and the eyes on and all that. As the years have gone by, he's the most down to earth guy in that band, and that was the beginning of it. The fact that he stayed in New Hampshire for the fans and played that gig, even though by the end of the show he literally had tears in his eyes. They're singing Throwing Stones, you know, and there's the part of the Throwing Stones where um, or he was singing it. Uh, the future's here, we are it, we are on our own. And then he starts going, Pop is gone, and we're on our own. Pop is gone. And I'll tell you what, everybody in that room was crying. I'm surprised that they, he was even able to walk on stage. I mean, that's... Well, speaking about walking on stage, <clears throat> getting back to Todd Schaefer, he's fronting the band from Good Homes, who opened for them and who had to walk on stage in front of Grieving Deadheads and actually played... A wonderful, wonderful set, and I've always admired Todd for that. I've probably told him that almost every time I've talked to him, so I, I, I should probably... He's probably like, oh, there's that annoying guy who tells me the same story every time. No, at this point, he's like, that annoying guy, Rob Turner, who tells me the story all the right, time. Right, right. Usually people just say that the asshole Rob Turner, because they're more of an asshole than annoying. And we'll get into that in the Joel interview. Joel and Andy interview, right? Yeah, so? actually, you're right. But the From Good Homes would morph. Uh, that's Tim actually met Todd while and played for a while with From Good Homes. But um, Railroad Earth sort of came out of that. It also came out of Tim meeting Andy Gosling. Speaking of whom, at the time we did this interview, Andy was not with Railroad Earth on tour. And they were had, having different people fill in. Our Atlanta boy, Matt Slocum, has done a lot of it. Although, unfortunately, he did, was not able to do the Atlanta gig. Mm-hmm. But now... Now, this getting back to the Periscope, too. The piece of information that Scotty gave us, because we were speculating <clears throat> as to this was around the time that Andy was supposed to return to well, the band, as we, Tim. Go we ahead. Were, we were reminiscing on the interview and, and discussing some of the some of the things, because the interview, it's been, you know, we've been holding on to this one for a little bit. We had it in our pocket. We've been holding on to a lot, folks, because we can't put them out fast enough, you know? If we get a sponsor, QT, Holiday Inn, somebody... We could pump these buggers right out, but we are trying the patience of people who are not, are not getting paid or not getting paid for a while, right, Seth? Speaking of whom, Josh Thane, who works really hard, has been nailing my edits lately. Josh Thane, Wonder Dog Sound Studios, joshthaneproductions.com. Thank you so much, Josh. Thank you, Josh. Getting back to Railroad Earth? So, yeah, we, we listened to, re-listening to the interview. We Let's start with the one thing. You're a festival guy. Uh-huh. What's their 10th gig? They got Telluride. Oh, yeah. 10 gigs in. And then they, they didn't sign the record contract at Telluride, as, as Seth admonishes me, but it definitely planted the seeds that they were signed within a month, I do believe. Yeah. We, you know, instead of just telling you what we're, the interview's about, we'll, <laughs> we'll let you guys listen to it. But there's things that we talk about in the interview, such as uh, their tour co- that was going to come up with Mo. Uh, on a follow-up on that, that's where Scotty came in and, and did let us know. That, uh, yeah, at, M- Mo couldn't do the gigs because of uh, Rob Durhock, their bassist, has, uh, has been uh, found to have cancer. They still are shooting for their New Year's Eve gig, although I may see Al Friday night, and, uh, and I'll ask him if that's still on. 
But uh, Mo is not able to play the run. And a pretty damn good fill-in is Green Sky Bluegrass, a band very much rapidly on the rise. I mean, they're they're getting into theaters now, right, Seth? Mm-hmm. Yeah, Green Sky. They're going to be here in, in uh, October. Where are they playing? Tabernacle. Oh, my goodness. And potentially, I pitched to them to do the Fox Rooftop if that ends up happening. At that time, yes, and uh, I, I know I can't. I know some things I can. I know what I can say and not say on the air. Mm-hmm. But the the other thing going on with that is very exciting. This other band we're talking about, and I've been I've been diving into their catalog. I'm having dinner with a friend who knows them well, so I'm preparing for that other band as well. I'd be very excited. An Atlanta band. Yep, out of genre. Uh, out, way out of genre, <laughs> but you know, really good and plenty uh, to talk about. But so in T- this interview with Tim, though, we talked TV about shows. that um, about the uh, tour they were doing with Mo now. Obviously, that didn't happen, uh, but like Rob said, in August, Green Sky came in, and as well as the uh, band Twiddle did two dates with them in place of Mo. Uh, so that's there. And then what about Todd? Did, is He's back. What was the, What did um, Scotty say about that? Scotty said Andy played. That, that run was when Andy returned to the band. Oh, I thought said Todd. Andy. Todd has been with them all along. It'd be tough to I do know. without Todd. And one thing, Todd is an acquired taste for some, but Todd is a wonderful singer and a big part of why, you know... I love jam bands, but the the lack of ballads, or in some cases the fans' resistance to ballads, disco biscuits, um, can be disappointing to me. But Railroad Earth delivers ballads better, more consistently, and and at times really in moving fashion, more better than just about any of these bands. Would, Would you, you say in a timeless fashion? A timeless fashion. Thank you, Seth. By the way, our metal episode is up. And if you want to hear Rob just hack away at another one of his favorite artist names, definitely check it out. <laughs> Yeah. Ah, <laughs> uh, thank God Jake's down to earth. I love him. Thank God all those guys are down to earth because I'm an asshole to them. That's a good. They're, they're really good to me, and I'm just an asshole. Well, that's probably why they like you. I know. Isn't that weird? And then you ham it up and become more of an asshole. I know. They gave us a room backstage at Chastain. So cool. So cool. I'm still embarrassed about that. I feel Chris like Chris Myers is the thing to be embarrassed about. That's the only thing. But we move on. We'll just have him on and crush it. And celebrate him. There's plenty to talk to him about. Like Vinny Cagliuta. Yep. All right, Rob. Well, let's... Uh, let's you just... get over the interview? Do you have anything to, to share with us? We're cutting a bunch of segments today, so you I can will hold say... your wad a little. Yeah. I will say this, though. Uh, September 19th is coming up. We've got our WTNS Live at the City Winery. Uh, DJ Logic. Voodoo Steve Visionary. Lopez uh, Steve. will be our interview subject, doing an industry profile. But now with Voodoo Visionary, what I want to tell you is our reach-outs have begun to the Atlanta music community, and the mu- community is coming back strong. The night is going to focus of their music is not just going to be Voodoo Visionary. Voodoo Visionary is going to cover funk and only funk, and they're going to cover some of the prime funk tunes of a century. Now, here's the thing. Lodge is sitting in with them. And we're bringing in a bunch of different musicians from Atlanta to sit in. So every song's going to have different musicians with voodoo. And this isn't thrown together ad hoc, last minute, fellas and friends stuff. There's rehearsals. There's there's going back and forth, uh, deciding on material well in advance and really honing in. And they're going to put something forth that's really strong and tight. Yeah, this is going to be different. And, and now the uh, auction for We're Here For You. The items are coming in. Uh, we've got a wonderful... Autograph guitar. Hang on. We're here for you because that because people think we're here. It's actually hearing protection. Yes, really, yes. really the, cool company. If you've been to an event uh, where there's a jar and an ear and a bunch of earplugs in it, this is the way the, the the most obvious example that I've seen when someone's there with their kids 
and it's louder than they thought. When you're there holding a kid or whatever, you don't want to have to start thinking about where do I go to get hearing protection. You just want it right there. And because of this company, a lot of people who bring their kids to these shows and don't realize how loud it's going to be, you know, given the venue or whatever, they're able to grab hearing protection right away, easily for free. And you got to love that. And hearing so is funny. important. You, you, you go right to the kid thing. I'm the one with a kid. And I, my example would be, you know, like Rob, you know, you're getting older and you're probably losing your hearing. Huh? And you go to the huh? shows and, you know, you, you go, it's too loud. It's too loud. And now you have these uh, protective earplugs. But yeah, so they're a great organization. And we're going to raise some serious money for them. Yes. And they're bringing to the table some awesome stuff. And I'm going to go ahead next week and start uh, over the weekend uh, by Monday on our Facebook event page, a very, very good big listing of all the auction items, the silent auction items. What's the Facebook um, page? Inside Out WTNS. Right now. Any rate. It's, Same on Twitter. Please yeah. follow. Please follow. Please share. Please like, retweet. It helps. It really does. We're going to really push the promo out <clears throat> in the next couple of weeks. So um, leading up to the event, uh, letting you know more about the guest musicians that are coming in and what will be auctioning off. But I did want to say the guitar they have is a, um, it's this uh, very unique guitar and it's signed by a ton of musicians that have gone through playing uh, the Georgia Theater, including members of the Alabama Shakes and onward and upward from there. So uh, full details on our website. And next episode, we'll talk about uh, the coming live event. Uh, we, we have three segments to cut segments, so uh, we'll talk about it then. But um, we'll also talk about how the show is billed on the schedule. And Seth and I will have a good argument about that. Right, Seth? Any rate, so without further ado, uh, really enjoyed talking to Tim. He gave us a great amount of his time. And he's, he's, he's a dear friend of the show and a dear friend of ours, and I just want to thank him for his support. Really he's cool. our first guest that has actually gone out of his way to provide us with an exclusive oh, yes. tune. An exclusive. A lot of, a lot of artists only, have talked about it. Only person that has heard this song right. is and, the musicians themselves. And we'll lead into that in the outro. And uh, just a really cool New York guy. And uh, with an incredibly broad, storied career, he's played with a stunning array of musicians and came up through the New York scene. And it's just wild how their, their music's kind of associated with Colorado, but they are very much New Jersey, New York, that band, you know? Oh, yeah. All right, so here he is. Take, take us to him. So we're 
not far from the, we're in a luxury hotel watching planes land at the Atlanta airport, and we're sitting with a man who's a founding member of Railroad Earth and a wonderful improviser as a performer, but also someone who very much is about serving the song as a producer, Mr. Tim Carbone. Hi, guys. Hello, hello. Thanks for having us into the hotel room. Only Brendan Bayless has allowed us into his hotel room for an interview previously. I like this hotel. It's, uh, it's super comfortable. And, uh, you know, I've been in other Indigos, and they're super small. So we wouldn't have been any other Indigo I've been in. It would have been in, We would have been doing this in a closet, essentially. Crimson, white, and indigo. Colonel Bruce never would go to indigo. He would always go into a outigo. <laughs> That's exactly right. Indigo. Excuse me. He was, an, he was not an instigator. He was an outstigator. Outstigator. Before we get started... Um, I'm on the fan side. This is excited because there's a fan side element of Railroad Earth that I want to give a shout out to right away. Okay, go ahead. It's called the Hobo's Companion. And I think the people who run this are are the type of of people who are uh, important to this music scene. Like even myself researching for this episode... Also, in the past, when I found Railroad Earth recordings and wonder what they were, I just pull up the homo. I know we have setlist.com and whatever now, but I love the band specific setlist sites and stuff like that. And I don't, I, I, um, there are bigger bands that you that don't have that. You know what I'm saying? So, are you, you're obviously familiar with Hobo's Companion. Do you interact with them at all ever? I look at it all the time because I, I'm, uh, I, <laughs> believe it or not, I'm ashamed to say I use it to file my BMI live. Reports <laughs> really because I have to know where I played, when I played, and f- and for how many people. And um, the the hobo companion at least tells you where you were and when you were and what you played, and then from there you can extrapolate. You know, but uh, and uh, our uh, our tour manager Phil Kastrom uh, uploads all that stuff. He's super diligent. I mean, that stuff kind of goes up right away. It's like you can see the set list. <clears throat> You know, definitely within 24 hours and sometimes within just a couple of hours. But never before the show. The one time he did that almost cost him his job. Uh-oh. It was June 4th, 1998. <laughs> Who did that? Phil. That's not true. <laughs> <laughs> but anyways. <laughs> All right, so that's one strike, Rob. Right. I got two more. The first of many. Oh, come on. <laughs> um, but we're in an interesting... We're going to go back and talk... Talk all things Tim going back. But before, just some current things first. Uh, interesting time for Railroad Earth. You don't have um, your multi-instrumentalist Andy out on the road with you. We're, we're, we're our compatriot uh, Andrew Gessling is um, experiencing some health issues that he uh, is, he can't be on the road at the moment. And so uh, we miss him. And he's, you know, the, there's no way you can actually replace the guy. Uh, so we, we're using... Uh, couple of guy, uh, f- folks to kind of fill the space so to speak we're using um matt slocum on keyboards on a we lot know, we know him well in atlanta uh, well matt's a great guy and uh, it's a kind of ironic that we're here in atlanta and matt is actually isn't playing because hmm. he was he was already um previously booked for this evening so we're using uh another um excellent musician and good friend of mine uh eric, eric yates from the band hot buttered rum from the from the uh, Bay Area, and uh, so he's going to come in and play some banjo and some. You know, he plays. He's another. He's he's a multi instrumentalist, so he can kind of slip into that mode a little bit. And he's a super positive uh, individual. So looking forward to. But these kind of situations are exemplify one of the many beauties of having the fan base that you do, because while on the one hand, I'm sure your fans would maybe 
want to see with Andrew. You're well, full we're concerned about Andy. Sure, and that that's, too. That's the and but other than that, yeah. I mean, oh, but he's he'll be back out on the road. And probably we're looking. Um, it doesn't look like he's going to be able to make the festival season. Um, probably we're looking towards. Uh, I think he's the first thing he's going to come do with us is mo, uh, mow down, which is coming up. I think in July. Yeah, July Fourth weekend, I believe, right yeah. or right before that. Right before that, I think. So, but, so then, in, but then you know the traveling is what he. The Modown's pretty close to where our home base, so uh, things like that he can do. I think he's going to do. We're doing a. Uh, we're doing some show. We're doing a. Uh, really, we're looking forward to doing this run with Mo because what I love about the, the the pairing of the two bands is like the those guys are super chill, nice guys, and their music is so different than ours that it's not like the same old. You know, it's like it's not like hitting the same note with the both bands like there's definitely different notes hit being hit by both bands and so the people that are going to come to those concerts are going to get like a a full range of uh sounds and, and emotions from mm-hmm. the two different bands so no that's that's a that's a good point that is a really good pairing there's a, often uh bands are paired and it's like or younger bands that i talk to that say oh you know i really want to go on tour with umphreys and umphreys is a great example because they tend to bring a lot of younger bands on with them but when the bands are too yeah, the wrong Similar. band opens for Humphreys, it, it cannot work. Yeah, you, it's nice to have diversity in that. And, oh, and you guys that. played a lot of the same crowd, but the, the diversity is there. So I, I, I agree. Mo, but what I was getting parent. at, assuming that um, Andrew's health is, is okay in the long run, the point I was trying to make, though, was from a musical perspective, as a fan, to have a fan base that listens so attentively and is uh, in tune with different versions and kind of enlivened by different versions, this kind of forces the band to take a radical, radically different take on some of the songs, right? And that can yeah. be interesting to the fans. Uh, I can. We've already had that um, feedback from. Uh, we've used. Uh, I guess Matt's played three shows, four shows, four shows with us now. Four shows, and um, we had Chris Pandolfi out on uh, one <clears throat> one show, which was cool because he's an amazingly good banjo player. Um, but yeah, people were like, "Wow, I never." was not something that they thought of that they would that 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 it would fit or even you know it gives you a whole nother color wash uh so there's an upside to down downside of keyboards and especially hammond organ it's a huge instrument i mean it just make it just fills up a lot of space just because of its dynamic range and the fact that it's a legato based instrument so when you're playing a note and you're holding it down it's like that note goes on it's like having an orchestra behind you almost you know so it can fill up a lot of spaces so you, it needs uh, a really sympathetic player like matt to be able to pull it off in the context of a string band like rare earth essentially is a string band uh, to to be able to pull it off successfully matt does it brilliantly because i think he he fully understands what his that's what his role his role is not to overtake it or overcome it it's just to be in it you know and he does that really well so we're really lucky to have somebody because i think he's a brilliant player i mean uh, and his piano playing is stellar so any specific songs that have surprised you or you've really that let stay in your mind that in this setting that have really kind of given you a new look at him it's a lot of the atmospheric stuff he does he's done really well like uh uh morning flies was a really particularly brilliant um version and then uh you know, songs like that where there is already a lot of space in the song, he seems to understand that, that his job at that point is to uh, is to add to the atmospherics 
of it. Cause, and um, so songs like that. Amazingly, he did a really cool job on a, like a bluegrassy kind of number, uh, Drooper in the 119, which is sort of the story of the, the cross country train. Cross country train. Uh, one where like banjo is a big feature. And um, he came in and played uh, a little bit of piano, a little bit of Hammond, and just filled in the spaces where needed, you know? That song kind of speaks about the need for unity and uses the train for the analogy, right? How that used to pull us together and how we need to come together as a country. Would that be? Pretty much, yeah. And would you say that Matt's training with the Aquarium Rescue Unit kind of put him in a way to to, to what you just explained there to to handle the slashing genre coming at him with effortlessly ease? I mean, do you think? Well, I'm sure. I'm sure it had. Absolutely. And, and, you know, know, as a musician, uh, every single thing that I do uh adds to my ability to you know to my musicianship a little every every musical interaction contributes contributes to it which and takes it, us to the contribution <laughs> yes <laughs> which is that segue sam seth will like this because he's johnny festival frankie festival frankly speaking joe, joe festival joe festival <laughs> there we go was, uh, but you well. could argue that the contribution comes out of the festival world because back in the day, Railroad Earth would do gigs with New Monsoon and whoever else. I guess String Cheese yeah, yeah. took a hiatus around then too, so he probably benefited from that. Yeah. And that was the seeds of this band, right? We were actually doing... The contribution came about uh, as... Uh, I can speak frankly, right, about drugs and stuff? Yes, sure. this oh, is a fine. podcast. Okay. Don't start swearing, Seth, to... to yeah, exactly. no, I'm gonna, I'm, no, I'm no, 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 don't. I, I stop. stop that. People get it. People get it. Come on, Because usually when people ask, then he, he, he... Usually when people ask, he hurls off like 10 No, I mean, I say motherfucker, cock, shit, no, dude, all that sort stuff. of stuff, but I, I, I calm down. I don't say it that happens. stuff anymore. Tim's from New York. He never swears. No. Fuck no. <laughs> um, yeah, so we were doing... Uh, one of the... I, I think just before String Cheese took their hiatus, I'm drawing a blank on the year. It's only 2009, 2010, somewhere in there. So well, do the math. That, when was really? Fish taking a hiatus? It was Not probably then. 2006, <laughs> seven when they took the hiatus. I think somewhere. Okay. Um, we did like their their just before their hiatus, the last little uh, their last festival that they did at Hornings High, mm-hmm. and um, I decided we had the Railroad Earth was only going to do that Sunday show. And so I was like, you know what? I'm just going to go out and experience this whole thing. I wanted to feel, like, get the feel for the whole thing. So I flew out like on a Wednesday night, uh, and uh, when it no, I flew out on Thursday, and I got there like in the morning or like early afternoon. I went and set up a tent in the artist area, and I uh, and I you know just went to listen to all the music and had the whole thing. And I and I'm wandering around with uh, some friends of mine uh, from the. Uh, the Banana Slug Band. Banana Slug Band. Remember those guys? You no, know those I guys? do not. That sounds they're, intriguing. They're <laughs> they're from uh, Santa Cruz. Okay. And uh, they 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 write uh, children's music and they do like whole plays with them. Like and they'll have other characters dressed. They'll dress up as characters and they, and they you know they're really cool. They're super sweet guys. And, and so I was wandering around with them and and Jeff Miller and uh, Phil Frolino from New Monsoon because they were playing the same festival. But I'm wandering around. Like, I'm looking at how they have the whole place is set up. I don't know if you've ever been there, but the place is, they, they have, they, each camp has a theme. And so they'll, they'll adhere to, and, and it's all essentially based up for people that are doing, they're set up for people that are doing psychedelics. I mean, it's pretty obvious that that's what's going on. I mean, like the one camp was uh, based on, uh, their theme was uh, uh, Alice in Wonderland. And as you're coming down the hill into the, where their camp 
is based. There's a huge, like, 40-foot-long caterpillar yeah. with a hookah. Oh. Dude, like, and like, and they have, like, a smoke machine set up inside of them. So when it goes and blows out giant smoke rings that turn on themselves and go across the field in slow motion. Oh, wow. And, like, this really, like, amazing... I mean, all this kind of crazy... Smoking caterpillars! Yeah, it's unbelievable. Like, really, you know, really well done. And so I'm, I'm wandering around, and I'm just... I, I just blurt out, you know, I, I haven't done LSD in, like, 25 years, but if I were ever going to do it again... I call it coming out of psychedelic retirement. And right. then all of a sudden, 35 people pop up with vials. I got, I got, I got. <laughs> <laughs> and so... Uh, it's too we, late, man. You're standing on it. <laughs> and, and so, you know, I went, you know, uh, that's exactly true. Somebody's, well, I know, I know just the person. And so we wandered up and to this fellow's uh, tent. I don't remember his name. He's an older guy, older than me. And I'm old as dirt. So he's a little older than dirt. And uh, he says, uh, you got to got anything like a cracker or anything or like a piece of gum or something I can put it on because it's just a dropper and I'm like oh I got some of course you know the, the hippie in me came out I think I have some stone wheat thin crackers in my tent <laughs> so I went and fetched the cracker and he put a drop on it and he was like um, I'll give you another one just in case you think that this won't be enough and I'm like I'm sure it's going to be enough. <laughs> that wheat then didn't feel so stoned all of a sudden. It was a tripping wheat then all of a sudden. It was, uh, it was truly an amazing experience. So I did the cracker like right away, and I, but essentially that kind of lasted all night, you know. And um, <laughs> typically does. It was great. It was Friday at night, so I knew that I had Saturday to recover, and I didn't have to play till Sunday. And uh, and so in the midst of that, and we were all like in the same state, and uh, and, I, and I realized that, that I remembered why I loved LSD so much because it makes everything look so beautiful. Yes, uh, really beautiful. It Get was some just, mind racing though a little bit. It, it, yeah, it did, and it was you yeah. know this stuff was really um, you know because sometimes you can I kind of stopped doing LSD because you couldn't get the stuff that was around was just kind of like real you know angsty speedy like make you grind your teeth kind of stuff and that wasn't what it used to be and that's not what this felt was. that was oily it's kind of had to, like, you felt like you were just a, a oily going, that's yeah, a good way like to describe oily. it yeah. non-berry would be another way yeah b-e-a-r-e and, yeah. and then also who has time to write a manifesto well true i, I try to make time but i've never really i, I wind up getting involved with all of look at that yeah it's kind of i keep seeing these planes coming down it it that's on its own just trippy because how does a plane these things are huge and they just float yeah they're just and they're floating by my hotel window i mean that was like maybe 200 300 yards away yeah and about maybe 200 yards 300 yards up in the air it's we've got like four runways here in atlanta it's crazy i mean i felt like i could wave at the 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 captain as he went by so anyway so in the midst of all of this uh lsd are you nonsense, tripping right now no i'm not oh okay i could be um and uh, we, you know, that was when I, you know, I heard uh, the string cheese incident set, and I remember being like hyper aware of what they were doing, because I, I never really got them, hmm. um, because I didn't. Uh, most of the time, it's really hard because when you're playing a festival set with them or something, and you just kind of see them from side stage, you're not out front, and you don't get the full effect, you know. And I that was the first time I actually was out front listening, got the full effect, and it's like, wow, this is really cool. Not only are they putting this music out but they're also engaging other artists and and performance artists doing their thing in front yeah. of them that was yeah. part of the whole set 
And I was like, that's really cool. And, and then that's when I just turned, you know, when I'd been hanging out with Jeff and Phil and I played a bunch of music with them in four. And I was like, you know what? We should just make a record. You know, the three of us should just get together and write a record and make a record. And then they were like, yeah, man, this sounds great. And that's kind of where it laid until like two months later. I called them up and I said, well, I got some time. I got like a week uh, available and I got a bunch of miles, man. How about I fly out to the Bay Area and I come up and we'll hang out and we'll write some songs. And they were like, all right, let's do that. And that's, that's, I just flew out. And and how did you select and procure your engineer for that? Well, we were, this is way before the engineer. We wound up like, uh, we were um, lent a, a little cabin in West Marin in uh, this little town called Woodacre. Um, and uh, we just held up there with a little keyboard and a little t- tiny tape recorder and acoustic guitars and my fiddle. And I came with a bunch of snippets, and they each, each one of them guys had snippets of stuff. Mm-hmm. And uh, and then so that with the first session lasted, I think, five days. And um, we, I think, we wrote five or six songs in that amount of time. And then we came back out again. I came back out again a, a couple of more times. And then we had the songs um, written. And we we chose the uh, engineer and the studio because it was where New Monsoon had done their last record. Ah, which was. Uh, um, What's the place called now? I think it was the, the original studio we did the first album in was called Why you Laughing Tiger. What is it? Laughing Tiger in San Rafael. I do want to point out real quick, that, and Seth can probably speak to this better than I, but New Monsoon was a great, great band. Uh, I remember they had a tabla yes. that really drove the sound. They also, had, they also had a really, really good publicist. Uh, oh, wait, that was me. Never mind. Oh, oh, oh that's You just contradicted publicist. yourself. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah, I did, right? Yeah, Rajiv Patel. Great. What's he doing these days? I haven't. Is, I haven't heard. heard they him never recovered from him leaving. Didn't he leave mm-hmm. the band? He, well, he left, and so did their other percussionist. Yeah, well, who, Brian. who went on to be a Blue Man Group? Brian. Oh wow, that's a gig. Right? Didn't he? Did, yeah, exactly. I think he teaches in Boston now. So Brian does. Um, as far as uh, Rajiv, I believe that he's in um, IT work now. I believe that he's doing. You know, he's out there making real money. And, uh, so contributions in the studio. So then we go into the studio. We go into Laughing Tiger, and uh, that we use their same engineer, uh, Ricky Vargas, who's uh, a young guy. Uh, and I loved I loved him right away because he uh, he was a microphone geek. He was really like into like knowing like what microphone to use, like uh, like within the parameters of the mic closet they had at the studio, which was actually very good. Um, and he also, um, I, I used his technique of miking violins now, like all mm. the time, which is he puts a, he puts a, a ribbon mic over your shoulder, like I'm playing, you know, straight. He'll put a, rib, a ribbon mic over my shoulder, maybe about a foot off. Interesting. And uh, you know, and ang- angled down, and then like level with the body of the instrument, like two feet away, he'll put a small diaphragm condenser mic pointing right at the 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 juncture of the neck and the body of the violin. So you get this warmth from the ribbon over your shoulder. So it's like a matrix kind of thing. Yeah, and then you get you get the, the detail and the, uh, the high end, nice. but not too much of it because you're not above the violin. I find that you, when you put those condenser mics above the violin, you pick up those transients that are, that are not pretty, you know, they're harshy kind of stuff. But if you get it down, look, and he, what he does, you put it at, at the level of the body and like a, a foot or two away, then you get all of those high-end transients that you want the pretty stuff that gives you the detail of the instrument and so you put them together and then you'd be careful that you're not going to have the two and 
two microphones out of phase. That's the that's the, the big that's when you, you know an engineer knows. But you can always fix that in Pro Tools. You can always you know align the two uh, waves together. So, but it makes sense that he would end up the head engineer of TRI because a lot of what they're doing there is about mic placement, mic control. They also can and their mic their mic closet is ridiculous. I mean, they have they have every microphone you. Well, at least they, I, it's been a while since I've been here. But like when we were making the, the the second record there, they have a brilliant mic closet, and they they have a really beautiful uh, API board, and um, it sounds great. Great for drums. TRI's Bob's Bob Weir Studio, Marin County, mm-hmm. California. And Seth, by the time the contribution, because they, they're all in different bands, so they don't have a lot of time. So they did an album in 2010, and then just this other one they started working on about five, six years ago, right? This new record, uh, we started about three and a half years ago. Oh, four, okay. four years. About four, now it's four years, because we started in, uh, was this probably 2000, yeah, 2013. And by then, their engineer is chief engineer at TRI. And so mm-hmm. you got a bargain. He gave us a great deal. Yeah, the same yeah. same deal. Actually, we got at Laughing Tiger, which was actually really good. Um, you know, we, I, <clears throat> yeah, we're lucky that we we're super lucky to work with such great engineers and 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 recording studios that are willing to um, enable you to financially, you know, do this stuff because it could be you know you could be really expensive. Well, I mean, if you want to get in that closet, you got to talk to Mike. Right, <laughs> but the one the of the closet because it's his closet. <laughs> One of the things about TRI, though, is that they can adjust the room for an ambiance for like a hall for all different stuff. Did you avail yourself of that at all? Oh, I didn't know about that. Wait, hold on. What do you, what do you mean by that? They, he, use, they, they have this. Or, they have this. Um, it's kind of a odd. It's really cool. It's an. Uh, it, it. It's a room modeler, like a real time room modeler, and I believe it's made by. Uh, Myers, the Myers company does it, right? The, that would make sense because Weir has done all kinds of stuff with that yeah, company. I think they, I may be wrong about that. I'm pretty sure the Myers, they, but they developed this. This it's essentially a reverb, um, but they they can change the, di- the 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 virtual dimensions of the room you're in. So like you can be in this room, which is actually a fairly large room, um, but you can make it seem like you're playing in Madison Square Garden, hmm. or or like a cathedral, or like in somebody's you know. Small living room. So, you know. what setting did the contribution choose to immerse themselves well, you know in? What? We just we just used the room. We didn't even use we didn't use the modeler at all. We just used the room and the, uh, we close mic and room mic when we had to. Uh, we all played when we tracked those the when we did it uh, TRI for the second album. This album that we're promoting now, um, we tracked I think uh, the first uh, five songs there. Um, and we did them pretty much live in the room together, uh, and even like um, some of the songs, like the, the, this current single that we're about to release a little later this month, "Dream Out in the Rain." We tracked that, and uh, Cheryl and I sang live to the track. We wound up redoing some of the stuff, but we but we 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 tracked live, and uh, but, and they have lots of gobos, so they can give you your own space, and you're not going to interfere. And then we were well enough. Uh, rehearsed that we were able to pull it off within about four or five takes and you know got a great drum sound at that point we had Matt Butler playing drums the original lineup had Jason Han uh, the percussionist from String Cheese Incident uh, the first record he was the drummer on it but um, you know Yoto got to be so um, busy that yeah. we were, I could never get them I could never get Jason to come on board with pretty much yeah, Yoto's so doing we, well and we moved to Matt, and then it's fun for the last three singles on this current record, like Matt's uh, project. Matt every, Butler. Matt, Matt Butler, his uh, his 
project uh, Everyone Orchestra got so busy that I couldn't get him on board to make the, the last three singles, the, la- the last three songs, which were recorded in Denver. And uh, we used uh, Dwayne Trucks on the drums for those three. Friend of the show. Uh, Dwayne's great. He's an unbelievable player. So, great guy, too. Can, can we talk about Cheryl Renee a little bit? How did you find her? Wonderful vocalist uh, from the contribution. She's uh, amazing. She's, uh, she sings in a gospel group called uh, the Black Swans in Denver. And that's, when, that's how I met her. Um, he, uh, Railroad Earth, was looking around for... Um, we wanted to do something that was going to change up a little bit. We were playing at the Og. We were doing three nights at the Ogden. And we thought, hey, one of the nights, why don't we bring in... Uh, it was actually our, our manager at the time, Brian Ross's idea. So how about gospel singers? And so he did a little quick search and found uh, Black Swans. And so... Nice find. Yeah. And then they, so then uh, they came down and they were great. Uh, and then I, I wound up using them on... Uh, I probably used the Black Swans on six five or six different records because you know Cheryl and I kept kept in contact and so I used them on the Great American Taxi record I've used them on uh, in a bunch of bunch of other records and also on uh, obviously on the contribution and then Cheryl like we when we started to do the live shows for the first record I had Cheryl come down to sing and then we wound up like we were writing material that that was uh, it was really great you know, the other material that we started to write after the first record became like, you know, this would be great for duets. And there's one song in particular that, uh, that that's coming out next month. It's coming out in August or no, July, rather. <clears throat> that um, I wrote the words to it uh, after Jeff uh, Miller's uh, mom died of breast cancer. And, uh, and it's called This Too Shall Pass. And uh, Cheryl sang it. And it's just her performance on it is just like jaw-dropping you say that coming out uh, and you're talking about one track so can you can you elaborate a little bit about that so it's not a full album or it's your, well it's a full album we, we, we it's a new know, model though and I had to come up with a con I mean it, you know it, nobody buys these things anymore you know really I mean it's it's difficult to sell them you know the CDs and whatever um, and usually the reason why you, a band will make a CD is not to actually it's not so much for the the revenue stream that it creates, so that's a small part of it. But usually, it's to promote the band. It's like the, to give writers an opportunity to develop a story about the band that they'll write about and that they'll people will read, and it'll give them. It's essentially the a device to put more asses in the seats, you know. To tour, you know, it's a it's a tour, um, it's a it's a tool for touring essentially. Well, we don't tour. The band can never really tour. There's no way. I mean, if any, we've done you know maybe nine total performances in the entire life of the band. So seeing seeing the contribution is kind of like seeing a unicorn, you know. So, um, but what about taking like December when everybody's down and just going out for a week? Or in you know Mexico? <laughs> I'm never down. I'm not down. That uh, I'm not down. Even December. through December, huh? First of all, nobody. It's like it's a, that's the very most worst time to tour. Because people are out doing their holiday thing, and it's very nooks. And and a bit, to be honest with you, it costs me before the band, before the band makes any money at all. I'm. It costs me like five grand to put the band on stage. Right, right. You know, like a, at least four anyway. You know, I'm not complaining. It's just that that's the, the you know the, You're the primary investor. You made it all. You had to fly out and pay the musicians to do the first record, right? Yeah, pretty much. 
So you're releasing a track uh, every one every one month or whatnot. Every so are month. these tracks all done and you're releasing them, or you're just kind of working on them? No, and they're done. Them going? The record's done. It's in the can. As a matter of fact, it's being pressed now for vinyl right now. It's in the it's in the we're going to release the double uh, double LP in October, and hopefully um, we'll hear some of that on this episode. Absolutely. Um, yeah. I mean, we can. I don't. I think that this is scheduled to be released in September sometime. So I will give you guys a link to. Uh, a SoundCloud link, and, and I'll give you a CD once we get them, and then that won't happen in September, that's for sure. And there was perhaps an unintended appropriateness to the name of the band in that yeah. each each recording has helped to contribute to the next recording, and then you also have the GoFundMe contributing. So you have all these. It's a, it is a contribution yeah. creating this. Well, the idea was to you know why are we going to make a record? You need a reason. So I was like, well, why don't we just give? We, we luckily we the sales from the first record were, were enough. Were almost enough, nearly enough money to record the, the second record. So we didn't, that was all taken care of. So the records are already they're there, and they're not you know we're not in a hole for those things. So I thought, well, what? How can we make the? How can we create a story about the band that will, will keep the band, you know, any any number of fans that we may have interested in the band and realizing that the band's still viable and we're still making music, and essentially for us, that's what it's all about, like the creation of the music, not so much necessarily playing that music. And I know it's totally anathema to the jam band scene because <laughs> everybody wants to go see the band and record them and like we just give us this free music, you know. That's not exactly. If you don't tour and mix up your set list, you don't exist, brah. Yeah, pretty much. And so we're not that at all. We're like the abs- the absolute opposite of that. Like we're this band that kind of almost nearly always exists just to make records. And so it's what we like to do and then we like we want and so we how are we going to get the music to people? So I, mean, I came up with the idea. It was like let's give a song away every month. Um, we'll partner with a different nonprofit organization, ones that we believe in. I, I put it out to the band, and I said, "Give me a list of nonprofits that you like that you've worked with before." And I saw Rex Foundation in there. You know, it's a favorite of mine. Yeah, yeah, and that was Matt's idea, Matt Butler's idea. Right on, Matt. And um, and so you know, we put a get, put together a list of the seven of these organizations that everybody that you know thought were were good ideas and um and so now every month we're putting out a single through cd baby and itunes and and um you know all of the other places where you can get digital singles and uh, all 100 percent of the money goes to that nonprofit, and not only just for that month but forever like as long as that as long as that that people want to go get that single they'll go there and that money will go to that organization from now until the end of Whenever. Can I one fan dork question, Seth? Before we move back, you're being very quiet. You okay? Yeah. No. Well, yeah. You know. You all right. right. I'm all right. Thank you. Can you talk? No, I'm good. I'll jump in. You know that. The first album has a song <laughs> on it called "Time Was Only Yesterday." Mm-hmm. Is that a reference to to certain styles of, of music at all? And are you incorporating those styles into the song, particularly toward the end of the song, as part of the meaning of the song? "Time Was Only Yesterday" it lyrically is um, m- mostly about like the the uh, the idea of uh, the collective con- human collective consciousness and ha- music as being the thread throughout history of the, of human collective consciousness and it, it's it's kind of disguised as a uh, girl you know guy finds girl girl g- girl and boy meet and then they go apart kind of a thing if you look at the lyrics it's 
it's it's a little scattershot, um, but uh, essentially the, the the theme of the song got to read between the lines is right? is um, if you look the the first verse sets it up. You know the the, the idea that there's you know the the sound was the first thing that brought humans together. You know, um, and time was only yesterday was you know the is the you know that's that's time was only yesterday when that was what brought us all together. You know. So, you know, I know it's probably not exactly the answer you were looking for. But. Well, speaking of yesterday, Seth, do you have a Wayback Machine uh, sound effect? Uh, we should start doing one. See, Seth is see. the sound effect guy, <clears throat> and we want to go back in the Wayback Machine. Like, oh, it, God, the Wayback is it a machine. fast one or a slow one? A slow, slow. <laughs> and then speeding up. <laughs> nice. We're back in New York, and I guess what? You were born probably somewhere in the 50s in New York. 1956. And what part of New York? I was born in Long Island. Excuse me. That's not how you say that. Say it again, Rob. What part of New York? What kind of fucking questions that, asshole? When you're fucking New York, that's when I'm at. You know what I'm saying? (laughs) Well, because one thing, at the risk of saying something obvious, but you're in this trad world, but you're not just a great player. You also will throw an edgy feel into it a, a lot, which woos people who normally wouldn't dig trad I think and also kind of makes is one of the reasons why I think Railroad Earth does the best ballads not just the way Todd sings but the way Tim colors from behind it and not in your normal trad way there's a little edge to it is that some of the New York mm-hmm. in you? Uh, well you know I'm fun- I, my, one of my patented sayings is I'm not really a bluegrass fiddle player I just play one on TV <laughs> um, you're a New Yorker I just play I mean, one at festivals. I when I first started playing the violin, I played classical music, and you know, I was, I was just one of those geeks in you know public school that played that. I never took a private lesson in my life. No Suzuki method. Uh, that's no. my next question. You just took it right out of my mouth. I, I don't. I'm not sure. But I guess I was Suzuki method because they would do you know you they would tape you put tape on the positions so you had your finger. But that's I don't it. Think, yeah. So, um, but it was all in a classroom. You know, with a bunch of other geeks, and it was, I never you know. Which was fine. It was great, actually. I, and, uh, you know, I took the violin, be, you know, in my public school, you got to choose your own instrument in the third grade or something. And in the fourth grade, you came in and they gave you your instrument. And my, I was under strict orders that I, uh, I, that I can only pick an instrument that didn't cost any money to rent for my parents. <laughs> of course, of course. So, yeah. So I was, that gave me that. It was like violin, viola, cello, or drums. So I was already playing drums in a, in a little... Uh, uh, kids' version of a drum and bugle corps that was associated with my uh, f- local fire company. So I would go out and play snare drum and you know the precision march with you know twirlers and all that stuff. And then I played drums in a in a little combo in my neighborhood. I played like a little snare drum and kick drum with a ride cymbal. That's all I had. And I played it standing up because I thought it was stupid sitting behind. Um, no, actually, I didn't even have a bass drum. I just had a snare drum and a ride cymbal at first. So I played standing up because it was like I'm not going to sit down in front of a snare drum. It seems stupid. <laughs> and uh, but so then I was like, I didn't want to play drums. I was already playing drums. So I, I, I knew that there was this cute girl that I had a crush on. Um, Debbie Givens was her name. And I've, I've told the story before, but it's actually kind of a cool story because even at a young age, it was all about the girls. Of course, <laughs> of course, yeah. And uh, so. I was like, oh man, I'll take. She's gonna take. I knew she was taking violin lessons, and I'm gonna take violin lessons, and I'll be in the same class. I'll be like within, like I'll be in like you know, there'll be me and like five other people and her in this in a room. It'd be She's awesome. Givens you inspiration, yeah, Seth. So, right, Rob did totally. the same thing, but it was fluid and it didn't work out so well for him. But go ahead. 
so I wait all summer, you know, in anticipation of taking the first lesson in the same class with Debbie Givens, and I get there and. No Debbie Givens. She moved away. She was an Air Force brat. I thought you were going to say she, she was in the drum, playing drums. Yeah, right. She was sort of sitting there. And so, yeah, I never saw her again. So, and that was in, and I had the violin. And luckily, I played it and I liked it. Uh-huh. And I was able to do it right away and I really enjoyed playing it. So I, I became that geek kid that would come home and people would, like, you know, make fun of. And I would go in my room and practice for two, three hours. And, um, you know, and, I, and then I, and when I was in, uh, when I first got in high school, I, 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 my dad was a big blues fan and I was I grabbed some harmonicas I bought a harmonica in some music store when I was like 12 or something and I started playing along to his um, Little Walter records and uh, and I was able to play and I and I was a big fan of uh, Paul Butterfield Blues Band I loved that first those first couple of East uh, East, East West and what about Junior of, Wells Junior Wells not I wasn't I didn't catch on to him right right away um, it was mo- it was mostly like Little Walter and and the and Paul wow. Waterfield, amazingly, because like, he wasn't, he was sort of like copying Little Walter in a way, you know. And um, so I, when I went to high school, I was a, just a dumb kid. I met uh, in gym class. I met this older guy. He was a senior, and he played drums in a band. And and uh, I had I did the uh, the talent show, and I played harmonica. And I was like the only white kid in the whole thing. I went to a predominantly black school, and that, and my parents. It's the last time they ever came to see me play music because it was in a, in a in a weird way in the 19 early 1970s it was unusual for like like older white people to go to some place and then show up and be the only people the only white people in the whole place when i looked out i come out and uh, and my parents were the only white people in the entire audience i mean you couldn't miss them they were like two white corks bobbing in a black sea out there <laughs> and two white corks bobbing and, in a black sea and it was pretty amazing it was like and i was a total from that point on like everybody loved me because i played the harmonica and i played in a, i played a blue i played a solo blues stuff and they were and i won it was like totally and everybody was like that white boy won i can't believe it and and so i, I joined this band the guy he was like i saw you in a talent contest man we play playing a blues band you should come play with us and so that weekend i went and jammed with them and next thing you know I'm playing harmonica in a blues band. And wow. who, who knew? And uh, I found this record in a record store by this guy named Sugarcane Harris. And there's this weird little picture. It was, like a, it was a mirror. The guy's in the mirror. And he's wearing this weird red wig. And he's playing the violin. And I'm like, this is the weirdest thing. I have to buy this just because the cover is so bizarre. And so sure enough, this guy's playing blues and funk stuff on the violin.
so I just like copied everything he did off of the record. And I then like a couple of weeks later, I figured out how to. I saw in the, one of this picture I I, I found of him uh, in the corner in the center of the record. There's a picture of him with the violin and had this cup thing on it with a dial on it. And so I found out th- in, from the music store. I said, like, "Oh yeah, that's a Diorman pickup. You can buy it." So I bought this. Had them. I sent away for this Diorman pickup. I put it on my violin and I I borrowed my my brother's uh, Fender Bassman combo amplifier and I played a violin through that it's kind of howly kind of a weird electric guitar sonic kind of sound and I I literally copied every lick that Don Sugarcane Harris had on the record and I brought it into band rehearsal and I said hey guys check this out next thing you know I was playing electric violin yeah I was 14 years old And then that's what, and I, so I never played bluegrass until I was out of high school. As a matter of uh, fact, you played all kinds of different stuff in all kinds of different bands before Railroad Earth, right? Completely, yeah. Are there any particularly strange characters or, or acts that stick out in your head from those days that we played with? Yeah, Remember or that you were in a band with? We only have an hour up. <laughs> oh yeah. Oh well, my I was in a band with Andy Gessling for uh, 19 years called the Blue Sparks from Hell. And our uh, we were we were a, a group of characters. We were we played jump swing and R and B, and also our alter ego was uh, this weird like kind of string band bluegrass, like really raw, like holy model rounders style uh, acoustic music. And, and so we did both of those. And uh, our lead singer was uh, the late C T Tucker, who was uh, equal parts uh, Rudolf Nureyev, Mick Jagger, uh, Lenny Bruce, and uh, John Boy Walton. Oh my goodness! Oh. And so yeah, so we were nut jobs, and we did you know we had dance moves, and I played electric violin in, in the horn section with Andy, who played saxophone. So we were the horn section, and uh, yeah, we were like did a lot of Lewis Jordan, Wynoni Harris, and you know that kind of stuff. So all this is fueling you, but also around that time or even earlier, you were going and seeing concerts. Oh yeah, you said mostly at State University of New York, right? I saw lots of concerts. I saw the Dead. Uh, um, people the deadheads go like uh, you know they're, they're all talking about how many shows they've seen I, I've seen maybe a dozen shows but like one of them was, was New Year's was uh, Halloween Halloween <laughs> at Stony Brook University in 1970 with huge Pigpen. show huge show look yeah. it up people 103170 yeah, yeah. And, uh, and I saw Dirk and the Dominoes same year so Frank Zappa same year that's with the with the you know with the the, the, the Zappa band with Ainsley Dunbar on the drums and the, the turtles singing Although Tim, who plays in the acoustic, wonderful Railroad Earth, how many times did you see the Dead play acoustic? None. Oof. I didn't either. Never saw them play acoustic. Talk about traffic, though. Oh, I love or the traffic. Atlanta, so go ahead. It, traffic. Uh, I think there's an influence there. Oh, big time. Yeah. No, it saw traffic at the Comac Arena, like probably five times in the same place. Different incarnations. I saw them with Dave Mason. I saw them without Dave Mason. I saw them when, amazingly, Steve Wynn would only play guitar and not keyboards. They had another keyboard player. And I, we were watching. I was like, when is he going to? Are they going to switch off? They never, he never switched off. He played right, guitar right. the whole time. And they had, then they, uh, for a couple of times, they had this amazing percussionist named Rebop Kwakuba playing. And, and, and Jim Capaldi not playing drums, just playing tambourine and singing. Like, that's weird. <laughs> That's, that's amazing to me. That Fleetwood was, Mac without with uh, Peter with, Green with Peter Green and uh, Danny Kerwin and Jeremy Spencer and uh, Christine. At that time, I think she was called. I think her name was, was before she married John. Her name was Christine Love, and then John and Mick, and then a, another time that uh, Peter's out of the band, and it's just Jeremy and and Danny. 
Is that okay without Peter? It sounded awesome. I love that record, Kiln House. It's an amazing record. I love that record. And then the, 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 I saw them a couple of times with Bob Welsh, and they were fantastic with Bob Welsh. And I think Jeremy was out of the band at that point. It was just Danny Kerwin playing guitar. And it's just amazing. It's just like, you know, the, 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 I grew up in Long Island was actually, it was really cool because you could see, I saw Jethro, the original version of Jethro Tull at a closed down bowling alley oh, wow. in Southampton. You know, I mean, like, just, you know, the original Jake Isles band, like, being first of three on a bill with, like, Commander Cody and Yes. Whoa. <laughs> I'm like, What? <laughs> It'd be like you drink for the first two acts, but then you're like, yes, would start to be like, why did I drink? Yeah, right. Yeah, much, yeah. <laughs> um, but let's let's go toward. Go ahead, Seth. Well, I, I wanna I wanna. I, I know you have a direction where you want to go, but I'm gonna just throw going toward Redwood Earth next. But go yeah, ahead. Yeah, I'm gonna throw something um, a little a little out out there, but currently speaking, the environment for what you're putting out there, the Americana, bluegrass, whatever you want to call it, um, but the instrumentation that you guys are playing. Um, with bands now like Mumford and Sons that are getting mass popular, um, and, and Avid Brothers, yes, the Avid Brothers, like this, all of a sudden, you know, the mainstream are now open to the sounds. Which before, if they heard a violin, they'd be like, ah, and now it's like, oh, what's that? And I'm wondering how that is, how you're seeing the uh, your audience change because of that. Are you seeing is are you getting a lot more? Listeners now that you that wouldn't have listened from beyond before. the jam world, I think is what he's leading at, right? Yeah, you can say that. Yeah. Well, to a certain extent, a little bit. Um, we've um, we don't quite fall into that category, um, mostly because there are older guys in our band, and the Mumfords and the Avits um, attract young younger women because of their the you know the age groups a little different. Plus, the, those uh, bands like Mumford and Sons and the Lumineers, and to a certain extent, the Avids are. Their music um, has a. It's not formulaic, but there, there's a formula to it that includes uh, a lot of the hey ho and the and the sing along kind of a, a, you know feel about some of their songs, but then the, definitely their hits that audiences can um, grab onto and sing along with, or feel like they can sing along with. And I don't know that we necessarily have that. Maybe a couple of our songs like Head. You but know. they can be the gateway, though. That, that, that's the yeah, way of wooing the kids yeah. to the genre, and then once they well, are, they are, and they certainly have uh, to a certain extent. Yeah, but the, yeah, we're not. Well, listen to to, to a blind thirteen-year-old. There's really no difference. Well, if I could just find those blind thirteen-year-olds. <laughs> no, but seriously, they're like fourteen, fifteen. They get into Avitz and the Mumford, and then after a few years, like when that's, I was a kid, I got into Dead yes. and Zappa, and then after a while, I was like, I want to see more. Where's this all coming from? That's how I found everything mm-hmm. yeah, else. Yeah. Well, that's how. Yeah, that's kind of I. I guess I found the, the real blues from. Uh, luckily, I had my dad was in. He had you know records and um, because and and I was for a while there. I was like, I'm listening to that crap. I, you know, I want to hear the Beatles. I, I only listen to tapes. I, like, I don't understand that stuff. You, but then it was like, wait a minute, hold on. That's kind of. Then I heard I heard Paul Butterfield and I realized that's kind of like what my dad listens to. And, I, and I, <laughs> then I kind of stole his you know little Walter records and his and his. Uh, his uh, Lightning Hopkins records and Freddie King, and uh, no, he wasn't. You know, it's funny. He was like, he's kind of into Elmer James, um, you know, Lightning Hopkins, Little, Little Walter. Walter, Muddy Waters. He was big, big Muddy Waters fan. Hard not to like him. Yeah, and uh, yeah, we played with him. Bruce Sparks from Hell opened for Muddy Waters. What? Oh yeah. In, any interaction? Nope. <laughs> Got paid shook, cash that night. I though. shook his hand, and his hand—I don't have a small hand—and his hand was 
He made me look like a little kid. <laughs> and he had a neck as big as my head, man. His neck was huge neck. His neck was like, just kind of went down and became part of his shoulders. Uh, <laughs> was he drinking champagne and smoking reefer? Didn't notice any of that. He had his, we, we, the place we played with him was this place we played all the time called the Stand Up House in New Jersey. And they only had one dressing room and we weren't sharing a dressing room with Money Waters. So you were out in the street, <laughs> yeah. out in the van in the back. Pretty much out in the, we had a bus. We had an old Greyhound bus and so the, that's where we were. <laughs> all right, so Rob, go ahead. The Bring initial days of Redwood Earth, how, how did they form? And I know that your 10th gig was Telluride and I want to find out how the hell that happened and what the other nine gigs are like. <laughs> I, you know, it's a, to, to, Kind of an odd story. It started way back in like nineteen ninety eight, ninety nine, or early two thousand, somewhere in there. It's a little fuzzy. I hate that that is. You, that, I hate the fact that you can actually say way back and, and then go to nineteen ninety nine or two thousand. Oh boo hoo! Now you know I just turned forty, and now that's how it, that's all of a sudden way back. That's just weird. It's just weird. I know it does. It is a little weird, but you know time marches on faster than you think. And, and here's the one thing I know: being twenty years older than you. Is that it goes faster and faster? It keeps going faster and faster. Well, because each year represents a smaller percentage of your life. My exactly, and my and my only way out of it is doing everything I possibly can to to do what I want to do, musically, philosophically, intellectually. If I want to go see an art exhibit, I go see it. If I want to go travel to Europe, we're going. My wife and I had came to this epiphany about five or six years ago, and like, what are we waiting? Excuse me, like, what are we waiting around for? What what's what exactly are we waiting? We yeah, we'll get we'll, like we always want we always wanted to go to Paris. Wouldn't it be nice to go to Italy? I mean, I'm Italian. It'd be nice to go to Italy. Screw that. We're going. So you went? Well, I, we've gone to, for the last six years. We've gone to Europe once or twice a year. Nice. Yeah. And you yeah. can support those trips at GoFundMe. <laughs> you know what it is? It's like we just. Uh, I, I'm blessed because I travel a lot with Railroad Earth. So I get a lot of air miles, and so like nine times out of ten, I'm using the air miles for at least my wife's ticket. And then in order for me to remain, because I have to travel with my violin, and the only way I can get on oh, the plane, yeah, yeah. You have, I, need to, I need to carry that on. And and the only way, it's if I were in getting on with the hoi polloi and being like in group five and getting in, getting in seat 20, in a row 29, dude, the violin's getting checked. And that's that can't happen. So I have to be premium and I ha- and preferably platinum. So I always get first boarding, and so I need X amount of miles. So if it looks, if I'm looking at my miles to look at what the band's going to be doing for over the next the course of the year, and I realize I need another twenty five thousand miles, then I'll buy my ticket to England or to Italy or wherever we're going to go. And otherwise, I'll use the miles because the miles don't take away from your elite status if you use them. So now, when you're on the road with a band and you have an off night, you probably aren't looking to go see other music. But when you're traveling in Europe with your wife, do you check out what all artists? The, time. the reason why we go to England, like we've got every year we go to Europe, except for this year, because it's probably not going to happen because we, we have a lot of other things happen. And we, my, my wife hasn't been able to get the time. But the reason why we go is like I go to music festivals in England. Like I, it's hard for me to go to music festivals in the United States because I like to. I'm a music geek and I want to go out and see the music and I stand out in front of the bands and. Hey, and people, you played really good last night. Yeah, people want to talk to you, you know, and then, you know I'm not complaining and, and I'm I'm a you know I'm a gregarious guy and I'll talk I'll talk to them for an hour, you know, and the next thing you know, like I missed the band I wanted to see, you know. When, when you go, we go to this great, our favorite festival in in England is this festival called the End of the Road Festival. It's in South Dorset. And it's coming up uh, 
Labor Day weekend. Um, and I'd like to go. And there's a little, there's a part of me that thinks I might be able to sneak out over there and get over there. But we've been three times to that one. We've been once to Green Man, the Green Man Festival in Wales, which was awesome, unbelievable. I mean, Saturday night, one of my favorite bands in the world is this band called the Super Furry Animals. Oh, sure. They're I've seen Wales. that. Yeah. I love them. Excellent band. And they they had not played live for five years. And so all of a sudden, like two years ago, two years ago, they headlined Saturday night in Wales at Green Man Festival. It's their first concert in five years. But leading up to that on Saturday night was Father John Misty. Ah. Uh, and actually, it was Sturgill Simpson, Father John Misty, and then television doing all of uh, Marquee Moon, and then Super Fur Animals, all on a Saturday night. I mean, like, that's my kind of... That, Misty's mean, a very important view- voice on the music scene today. And if you don't believe him, if you don't believe me, just ask him. Well, why don't we ask him? He's coming through town. <laughs> I would love to. Uh, that, I love him. Uh, oh, he's wonderful, but he's very into, I don't know, his fan base. It's a very, um, I don't know how to get into it. But I'd, I'd much rather have him on the show and talk about Misty. it. Because he's brilliant. There's no doubt he's brilliant. Maybe oh, yeah. they're mystical. Mystical. He's mystical. But let's go back to the early days of Railroad. So how okay. do you meet Todd? Well, I played with Todd. Todd Schaefer, and, uh, lead vocalist. Todd, uh, Todd called me out of the blue one year um, <clears throat> to get him, ask me if I would want to come up, come and play with his band from Good Homes. What year would that be? I was probably nineteen. I want to say ninety, ninety one, early from Good Homes. Like they they hadn't, you know, they were just. I think they only been playing for a couple of years, maybe. So I went up and played with him, and I did. I actually wound up being in the band for like six months, and then. Like uh, I went away on the last Blue Sparks from Hell tour, then um, when I came back, they decided that they wanted to go in another direction, and I, I was like, well, okay, and I'd started. I had already started another band that, like, another project, King, Kings in Disguise, which I had for ten years, and uh, that band we got, we wound up playing uh, at a festival with Rick Danko from the band, and Danko like pulled me up and was to his dressing room before he was going on and he was like hey uh, you guys know any band music I'm like really? man we know yeah what do you what do you want it was like I thought maybe you guys could come and back me up for like the last three or four songs nice so we went and blacked him up in the last three or four songs and he loved it and then for a year and a half after that like anytime Danko used used the band this was about maybe I think we did about maybe 12 13 or so shows with Rick we were his band. Let me guess songs. Makes No Difference? Oh, he did make, yeah, he did Make No Difference. Wheels no. on Fire? He did Wheels on Fire. He did, um, he even did some of the songs that he didn't really sing. Like, like Long uh, Black Veil? Uh, we didn't, we did Long Black Veil. We also did um, uh, The Night They Drove Old Dixie Down. We did, um, you know, a lot of the hits. What about Twilight? Don't leave no, we didn't me. Do, oh, wait, no, we did do Twilight. Beautiful yeah. song. Yeah, we did do Twilight. And uh, it was great. It was an amazing experience playing with Rick because he was a super sweet. Oh, I hold him a higher guy. Uh, he's he's up really, there with really Dylan really in my guy. mind. And he wrote, he was like one of these guys also that we. I noticed he would play and like every time we'd play, he would like uh, he would come in, he would walk in. The first thing you go like, okay, so who's the, who's the, who's the boss here? Who's promoting? Who's the, you know, who's the, I need to see him. And then he would go in and and he would talk to the guy in a separate room, and then he would come out and then we wouldn't even let the band. Like pull any equipment into the into the house first, and then, so I finally I said, Rick, what you know? What's what do you? He's just like, oh man, I you know, I just get paid first, man. 
I don't, I don't, I don't do, I don't pick up, I don't even bring my guitar in until I get paid. Chuck Berry is the same way. Yeah. Is it, and he's you know, because you know, then I can relax and have a good show. I don't have to worry about anything. I know sure. we've Ben's already been paid. I don't have to listen to the, you know, if whatever the crowd is, doesn't matter at the end of the night. I don't have to listen to like, well, we didn't do so good. I was wondering if I could, you know, none of that. Once you're paid, you're paid. They ain't giving back, not giving back the money. And I hold him in huge regard. He's an amazing guy, amazing performer. I've got to see him open for Jerry and everything. Also, though, kind of known once in a while, maybe on stage a little inebriated. Did you ever have to back him when he seemed a little tipsy? He was totally sober when we played with him. He Is smoked, that right? He smoked a little weed, but other oh, than that, that doesn't count. Yeah. <coughs> so. By the way, Todd Schaefer was in From Good Homes when yeah. they Oh, we're back to that story. Sorry. Yes, yeah, sorry. <laughs> they, I saw them open for Bob Weir the night Jerry died. That's I mean, oh, you were really? at that show? Oh, wow. my God. I mean, can you imagine having to stand open for Bob Weir in front of a bunch of grieving deadheads? And they played a great set. I was so impressed. Yeah. And so, yeah. And so, um, well, I, I was playing, you know, around. Um, at the same time, I was playing with Rick and Kings in Disguise. I was also playing... Now and then with this uh, singer-songwriter named Bobby Seiborth, and at, at, uh, I was playing at the, the Wetlands in New York City with him downstairs in the lounge. And uh, amazingly, that band also included Carrie Horman on percussion and background vocals, and uh, who's the current drummer of Railroad Earth, and John Skeen playing keyboards. Keyboard. Keyboards. With, and, uh, yeah, with uh, keyboards and acoustic guitar with... Uh, Bobby Cyber. So it's the three of us. And so uh, this fellow came t- into the show. He was there, this guy, Brian Ross, who came into, he was uh, management from the Disco Biscuits who were playing upstairs. We're, we're like, go see them and see, we'd like maybe, maybe like switch out over to you or your book, booking agency and use the. Oh, I use, thought they were going to have Fiddle sitting with the Biscuits. Oh, no, no, no. <laughs> they didn't know who the hell I was. That'd be interesting. So, but he, as he came through, he heard the vo- fiddle coming up from the, the, I don't know if you've ever been to Wetlands, but the, the oh, downstairs yeah. lounge oh, yeah. you get to with a little kind of a circular, kind of a staircase that goes down. It's, yeah. on, it's like below street level. And um, so he heard the violin coming through and so he was, oh, what's that? I'm going to go take that. And so he checked out the whole set and then on the set break, I went over to get a drink, and he was sitting there, and he, was, he came over, and he, you know, he said, hey, my name's Brian Ross, and blah, blah, blah. So we started shooting the shit, and then I told him you know, that I played with this other band, Kings in Disguise, and he's like, oh, cool, man. Look, well, I really like what you guys are do, doing with this, and you know, and he wound up staying for the whole second set. He never never wound up seeing the Disco Biscuits. And a couple what of years... What year was that? Uh, it was probably 1999, I'm going to say. I have this weird feeling that I was at that show. Could be. Um, is that, I, I might was, have been too. That, that was going it wasn't up to five one ninety nine, was it? Five one ninety nine is a sick biscuit show. Yeah, I don't think it was. I think it was probably a little later in the year than that. Probably more like November or October or November because mm-hmm. I, it was into two thousand when we started Royal Earth, and so and that all kind of happened because mm-hmm. he called me in a couple of years because then he realized that a, a couple of like maybe a week later. Uh, he called, we were playing at the bottom line with with Danko, and he called me and he was like, "Hey man, you know me and my wife really love the band and we love Danko. Could could you put us on the guest list?" And I said, "Sure, man." So I put him on the guest list. He saw us play with Danko, and that's when he first saw Kings in Disguise, and he first saw Andy play, and he was like, uh, "He called literally the next day. He called me up. That was a great show, man. But like you and Andy play really great together." And then I, you know, then he realized that we've been playing together for. 30 years right. <laughs> and, and he's like um, but if you two ever wanted to put something together have you ever heard of the this this genre called the jam band 
And I'm sorry, this is God's truth. I never, because I never heard of Zion. I don't know what you're talking about. I don't know. And he was like, well, any you know, brief explanation, uh, you know, with, you know how it's associated with the Grateful Dead and how it blah, blah, blah. And all of that. I was like, oh. Yada, yada, yada. Yada, yada. And so. No, actually, so, if he was talking about Jambit, he would also, he would have went on and on and on and on and yeah, on. You're right. Exactly. Uh, we, uh, is this a conversation or a noodle fest? What is this? Uh, and uh, and so <clears throat> he was just like, tease me every once in a while. And, you know, so I, I ran it by Andy, and he was like, well, I don't know, you know, whatever, sure. You know, so then Brian was relentless, and uh, he came. You know, he'd call me every other day, and then every day, and then it's like finally, he was like, okay. And so Andy like took the Andy took the bull by the horns because I was in the middle of. The, I mean, Kings and Skies. I was writing the music, singing the songs, booking the, the band. Managing the man, I had like no time to really do much of anything besides, and then inter- interacting with with Danko when, uh, when you know when to coordinate those things. So Andy took the bull by the horns, and he started doing through the course of two thousand. We were he would have these jam sessions at his house, like picking picking sessions at his house out in Long Valley, New Jersey, and we would have people come, and John Skeen was one of the ones that came. And, uh, and we do different round robins. There are various people. Sometimes it'd be five people. Sometimes it'd be ten people. Sometimes it'd just be me and John and Andy. Sometimes it'd be sometime in September of 2000. Todd started showing up, and I guess Brian had given Todd a call and saying, "Hey, you should be aware that this little thing is going on. You might be, you know, it might be fun for you to go down and play acoustic guitar in this setting." So Todd showed up for one, and then he kept kept coming to the. We do one like every couple of weeks into. Uh, Probably almost into the f- late fall, you know, before. Was his vocal excellence uh, immediately evident, or is it more of an acquired thing at that point? I'm not sure of the question. You mean the, the Todd he, is such a great singer, but to he's me, he's always been a great singer. I know, but to me, it's a kind of singer where the more you listen to him, the more you get the depth of what he's doing, the more that's involved. I would it, agree it, with that. And there's a, there are people that never really got him, and I and there are people I deal with this all the time. The people, you know, people like. Why does he sing like almost all the songs? I mean, because you know, that after a while, I get tired of that high, more keening voice. You know, I just and, like uh, the understated emotion in it. He doesn't overdo it. He really delivers, particularly the ballads. A lot of these jam bands can't deliver ballads. That dude's a great singer, man. Are you kidding? No, he's like you know. Plus, he knows that he's very familiar about the mechanics of singing. That's why he can he can put the emotion into it. He's a professional singer. It's like there's no doubt about it that. He's he's a guy that can he can really sing. He's not someone that does it. He not only has an innate talent for singing, but he actually knows, really, literally knows how to sing. You know what I mean? He knows the, the like he can hit a note. He knows the mechanics of it and the breathing phys- the, and the physicality of it. Mm-hmm. Breathing's huge, right? Yeah. Like and even knows, Garcia took lessons late in his career and learned breathing things that he could have. Phil Lesh still takes lessons. I got news for you. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. All the time. When I did the Phil and Friends shows, he was taking lessons once a week. And, uh, so, and he's serious about it, you know. So Brian, I'm going to guess, is the one that led you to Chris Caden, uh, who was doing your yep, booking in the exactly beginning. Exactly right. Yeah, because they, they had worked together before. And, uh, yeah, so we did the first... Our first shows were, like, you know, playing at the, you know, the Knights of Columbus um, Bluegrass Pick and East... Stroudsburg, you, uh, you know, Pennsylvania. Stone and, Pony. 
And not the nope. Sherman Theater. Not yet. No, no. not Sherman Theater. <laughs> Sherman Theater didn't even small. exist then. Oh, really? They hadn't been. They were. They hadn't. hadn't been refurbished yet. I just say that because that's all I know about Stroudsburg, Pennsylvania. It's a great no. theater. <clears throat> and we would play the stand up. We did a show at the stand up house. We did a little. No, not even at the stand up house. It was at the Fountain House. This little uh, old stagecoach stop, literally. That they that's been a you know a you know shot in a beer joint for since the 1920s, and. um so we, you know, we'd had we would set up a little PA and you know do do some shows out there. We did like eight or nine shows. One of them was a wedding for friend, for some friends of mine. Well, that was like the one of the last gigs we did before we went out on our first tour, which incl- which was essentially just put together so that we could get to Telluride because we uh, a tape was well, made. The tape was put together so you could have something. Yeah. I'll tell you right, right? Well, we made, we, we recorded five songs. We were like, hey, this is kind of cool. We like what we were doing and, you know, framing Todd's songs in kind of a bluegrass form. Uh, you know, we wrote, uh, we were, we wrote Black Bear in at Todd's house in the backyard. We were playing outside and while we're in the middle of singing it, like a shit you not, and Black Bear walked out of the woods. <laughs> That's a sign. Stood there, stared at us. You guys gonna eat she, that? <laughs> sorry. Yeah, right. Hey, you guys got any beer? <laughs> and, uh, and then Can I get songwriting points? <laughs> yes. And Does Head come from that session? No, Head was a song that w- comes out of the From Good Homes. Uh, oh, okay. Uh, but stay on Black Bear. I'm sorry, I didn't mean to derail you. Yeah, yeah. And so because so those are still iconic. Those songs. Those are still. You'd mean to derail him. <laughs> sorry, <Yeah. laughs> derailroad me. Oh, that's right. Oh, wait a minute. Um, yeah, and so we did. We did. We did this tour, and uh, we drove straight out to Telluride. Um, in the meantime, you know, before it was, we needed the drummer and a, and a bass player, and I knew. And Bobby Seibarth, who Carrie was playing with, had just decided out of the blue to move to Florida with his wife. Or I never really knew why. And next thing you know, because we got to go to Florida. You got to go to Florida. That's mm. where my parents live there. Come on, it'll be awesome. It's great to visit. You love my mother. You love my mother, don't you? And so. We got. I talked Carrie into joining the band because he was like, "I oh, mean, I don't want to. I just really don't want to get another band. You know, I just kind of want to freelance." And then, of course, I totally lied. I was like, "It's not a band, man. We're just like it's a project. We're gonna go in and we're gonna do some songs. We just need a drummer for the sessions." And then it was like, "Well, we know that we need to do another five songs because when then it was turns out that we got the Telluride thing, and it was like, you know, yeah, well, we're gonna do this tour. Maybe we'll bring you on for the tour. And next thing you know, he was in the band." How are you getting into Telluride, though? At a, that's still I'm still baffled by that. Because hey, this is a guy who works at festivals. He knows well, how rare this is. Telluride, people, veteran established bands and their booking agents fall over each other to get on that bill. I think Brian just sent the, sent the tape out to Craig Ferguson, and Craig liked it. I think that's pretty much the, the simplicity of it. Right on, Craig. That says a lot about Craig Ferguson, and it also says a lot to anyone that's representing a band. Don't be afraid to send something if it if, yeah. if, they, if it gets well, listened Brian to. Well, Brian Ross was like the him. guy. He's a, he was like relentless with all that kind of stuff, and he would even do silly things like he would get on message boards uh, and assume another name and like talk <laughs> about the band. Is he oh, a call-in requester uh, radio station guy? Sounds, sounds like our friend well, Brian. He might have been. I don't know. <laughs> anyway, but you know he was. Uh, Larger, you know, these sort of what do they call those people that do that? Um, not entrepreneurs, but oh, empresarios, empresario, like Matt Nelson. That's the word, right? It's kind yeah, of like an impresario yeah. kind of type of person. And he, you know, he had the idea. He saw Andy and I and what we could do. He saw what was going on in the pick sessions and what the players that were that were like left standing at the end of that summer. And um, and then that we were supposed to do Danko's record 
actually happened the winter before Danko died in 99. Right. But we were about to go in in January 2000 to do Danko's record. Oh. And then he, he passed away in uh, December of 99. He fell asleep. I guess he passed in his sleep. He was in Japan? No, no, man. He was home in Woodstock. Was he? Yeah, I went to the memorial. It was a very odd scene. We went to the funeral and uh, Levon and Garth and their entourage were on one side of the grave. And Rick and his people were on the other side of the grave, and they were not talking to each other. And no Robbie Robertson? No, Robbie. Robbie was Robbie there. was among them? Oh, Robbie was there on the other side. And, and then at the memorial, like, everyone was supposed to come to the memorial. And then I, what I heard, what Louie told me, was that then Robbie decided he wanted to come, and then everybody bailed. Did Robbie and Levon interact at all? Not then. Not during, not at the funeral, or and then and and Levon, or neither Levon nor Garth or anybody that uh, Louis was there, but other than that, nobody. The Kate, one of the Kate brothers, was at the memorial, and uh, John Sebastian was there. The uh, the late Artie Trom was there. Uh, he passed away like a year later, and uh, so all, of, all the Woodstock the musicians were there. But Levon wasn't there, and Garth didn't come because I, I'm pretty sure that like Louis says, I just didn't want to be. They didn't want to have. They didn't want to have Rick's memorial, like be a thing where there was like the you know bad blood between Robbie and Levon. Right. Garth could give a shit. I don't think. Did Dylan send an intern or something? Dylan was not there. Who knows? Who, <laughs> knows. Anyway, I was, had a motorcycle to tell the truth, it was a beautiful memorial, and and Robbie said this thing that was just amazing about like sending him home to the. Back to the tribes across the you know across the river, and, and you know, back to where we where we both came from you know because they were both in, you know Canadian Indians. Well, that at that time Robbie had just put out that album, the Indian inspired right. album too. Right, and so it was kind of cool to say you know I'm not I know the whole history with Robbie and all that and, and I know that there are I, I, I'm well aware of the the you know the uh, the idea that the Robbie took all of the publishing and and probably more than likely you know live on for sure and rick to a certain degree had more to do with writing those songs than just being people playing on the sessions and that's yeah. not the case that's a no it's a tough thing with robbie it's a tough thing with him yeah anyway so we went out and do you know we did our first tour and the 10th gig was telluride and thanks to you know craig ferguson and He's a funny guy, that Craig Ferguson. And then here's one of these things that you hear about, but walk me through the actual mechanics of it. You walk off the stage, and by the by the time they leave Telluride, they have a record contract with Sugar Hill Records. How did that? How did that go down logistically? Well, Railroad Earth, everything's on track, you know. Everything's <laughs> on track. Train runs on schedule. No, actually, the the, the rec- we were told that we, they they were there to see see the band at Telluride, but we didn't sign the contract till uh, months later. Oh, okay. They were handed the contract. You never sign right then, Rob. Don't you know that? Actually, can you sign this, please? <laughs> it was great. I love working for Sugar Hill and um, Beth Paul. Was uh, I, I like Beth an awful lot. Burn, um, Burn House was the first record with them? Yeah. And so then do they provide the engineer, I mean, the producer and the engineer and all that? Or are you we, still... We, uh, how do things record, change when you go big label? Uh, that We brought in John Sickett to engineer that and to co-produce... Uh, with uh, to and uh, engineer with our our uh, Mike, who's currently and has been a partner of mine for a very long, Don Sterniker, uh, Mixolydian in New Jersey, and uh, John Sickett. You know John Sickett, right? Sure, fish realm, fish area, right? And I've worked with John many times. I mean, I knew John when he was an intern at Water Music with the original Water Music in Hoboken when it was upstairs in a little <clears throat> second floor house. Um, 
But uh, and he was just an intern who was still learning his stuff. That's when I first met him. But bright guy though, right? Real great, great engineer. Outside the box thinker. Taught me a lot. Uh, he he uh, co-produced and engineered the Kings in Disguise first record uh, at Water Music, and uh, you know I learned a lot about miking techniques and. I lucked out because I learned. I had a lot of people, a lot of mentors along the line. The first guy that taught me what, you know, taught me what it was to be a, rec- a you know recording engineer was uh, Bob Clearmountain. I was working. I was making records. I was a session musician at uh, the Power Station in New York City, and I was doing a record um, with this guy uh, Ned. I can't remember his last name. <laughs> Not <Ned>. lagging. No. <laughs> um, Oh, well, there, it was there, but now it's gone. But uh, Bob Clearmountain was the engineer on the session. And um, and he, he saw I was interested in what he was doing. He was like, why don't you just come in like every day? And, uh, you know, and we, I'll walk, you know, you can watch me ask questions or whatever. So I, I did. He told me he was totally open with how he mic drums and how he used compressors and preamps. And a lot of it was over my head because he was talking to me as if I knew all of this stuff and I was just learning all of this stuff so but it was great to have someone that had you know that was compassionate enough and had that you know took the time to just and, and noticed that someone was actually interested <laughs> I want to talk about the songbird in the house just for a moment because one of the things I like about railroad earth is that you'll hear their songs and they'll be instantly familiar and you'll think wow is this a traditional is this a traditional song and then you find out it's an original which bird in the house is right I mean, th- does that happen to you a lot? Where Todd will bring you a song and you'll be like, "Wow, that sounds familiar right away." It's kind of how Todd rolls. I mean, he he reads a lot. He's very. I um, mean, he reads a lot of older literature. Um, he listens to a lot of older music. Not much like Dylan. And um, he has a really good feel for melody, um, and he also. You know he he know, he he knows how to write a song. He's a he's a gifted songwriter. Now speaking of gifted stuff, Rob, uh, you wanted to ask uh, something about um, Warren, didn't you? Oh gosh, I'd love to talk. I think it started. We're going to run out of time. Oh, so. are we running, well, 2009. You guys play uh, Red Rocks with Almond Brothers. Yeah, you end up meeting Warren there, right? Yeah, and I was packing my stuff up to go do a benefit down in Golden, and then like I got tapped on the shoulder and. Then, Warren, Mr. Haynes would like to see you in the, in the production office. And I went down and he was like, hey, man, I'd like to, we'd love to have you come sit in on a song. And nice. I was like, yeah, that sounds cool. I'll do that. Southbound? No. It was... Uh, Dreams? Come on in my kitchen. Oh. Yeah. Did they do it full acoustic? That, Hell no. It was not acoustic at all. We were crushing that shit. Nice. Yeah, it was all... I've never heard I mean, that. Yeah, it's, I don't know, it's probably a... I'm guessing there's got to be an archive out there. Of it. I mean, considering it's worn, yeah, I would think so. Joe Bell probably sold them for hitting the note, so Possibly. maybe we can get one. Yeah, I have a picture on my phone of me and standing between um, Derek and um, and Warren with Butch behind us, and you know, um, O'Teal. You know, he's. Not, unfortunately, Greg's not in the picture. He's that he's that he's off frame to the left. But did you chat he, with Greg much? Didn't speak a word to him. But I did look up in the, at the end at the end of my solo, and he he's looking at me the whole time, and I, he makes this little smile, and he goes, <laughs> "Go on." Which I took to like, oh, take another round. Okay, off I go. <laughs> I turned around. I looked at I looked at Warren to make sure it was okay, and he was like, 
<laughs> nice. Oh, it was great. It was super fun. They were great people. The whole band, that whole... I mean, I didn't, te- I didn't speak to Greg at all. I didn't even see him. Like, once the show was over, he kind of just disappeared. But afterwards, everyone, they were sweet as pie. And even Butch came up to me and, and Jaimo came up to me and were like, man, that was great, man. It was great. It was nice to see you. And Susan, like, I went off stage afterwards and she was standing by the monitor console and she came but came over and you know patted me on the back and was like wow that was great never heard anything like that you know because i guess they're not used to having electric violin players play with them that much i'm sure there are other people have but so then a couple years later warren's playing solo at del fest you guys are at del fest and he bring were you one of the musicians he brought out toward the end of the set i did the whole show with him oh you did the whole set i thought he just brought you guys well first he invited you to come out for the end of the set right he called a, he actually called me and at, he called Brian, and Brian gave me his number, and I called him back, and he was like, hey, I'm doing this uh, solo thing. He might have done the first one or two songs by himself, but then it was me and I think Andy. He had Andy come out. It was me and Andy, and uh, he had Ron, what's his name, the bass player? Uh, Ron Johnson, Johnson from Johnson, Boston? Ron Johnson, yeah. From New York, I mean? Yeah, and so he was playing bass with him at that time, and so it was just, uh, it was I think it was the three of us, maybe, and, and Warren. It was just, uh, it was a very small... It's a four-piece for the... And the one thing that I noticed about that show... I'm sorry, I'm, I'm back from the mic there. That's all good. Um, the one thing I noticed about that show was um, that it was so many ballads in a row. It was just like, oh, my God. It's a festival set with just, like, essentially ten songs, of, of which nine were ballads. Yeah, some some of these acts, like Bob Weir has his Campfire Band act, which I love. I love them too, man. But it's they the don't thing work. he's done in a long time. They I don't work at festivals so well. They, they, I love that record too, man. I think oh, the record's it's wonderful. Great. It's beautiful. Yeah. I mean, I, I say good for him. Absolutely. Uh, big time good for him because, you know, my feeling is got to keep creating new music. You can't, as, as great as the, the, the Grateful Dead canon is, if that's all you're going to play, then, then you're, it's kind of stupid. It stalls the culture a little bit. There's a stalling going on, and and there isn't any real reason for it because all you guys are fantastic musicians, and you and and you, and if you need to, you can co-create with other musicians, and there are a bunch of them out there that would love to do just that. So to, let's get on with it. Well, also Dead and Company, John Mayer. You know, Bobby could hook up with John Mayer with Robin Hunter, but don't let's not yes. get into all that. But uh, uh, so that's Del- an awesome idea. Oh, it'd be a great idea. I mean. Pfft. But they don't seem to want to do new material. They just want to do the dead shit over and over again, which they do it well. But and they really dive in each song. But uh, well, you're the, really beating a dead horse. Yes. Let's get back to so so you played Delfest and that. Hey, stop horsing around. <laughs> and that was more off the cuff. But then you played with Warren at the Capitol, and you really had time to work stuff out. And is that really the seeds for the collaboration at that point? Yeah, that's how that. I mean, and then he called me. I got a call from him. I was down visiting my mother-in-law in Florida, and then uh, he, oh, it's Warren Haynes. I'm like, oh, because I didn't. I had him in my uh, thing, but he'd never called me before. And all of a sudden, like, look at my phone. Like, the dust comes oh, off the phone. Warren, Warren <laughs> Haynes <laughs> is calling me. Yeah, that's interesting. So then, apparently, he had spoken to Brian, and they were kibitzing about maybe getting a band together with him to make a record. And I, and the first thing that occurred to me was like, you know, the way this, you know. Just not for nothing, but you know we have a lead singer, and we have a principal songwriter. So my gut's telling me that it'd be good for you, you two, to write a song together for the record. I think that would make it more of a, a real collaboration rather than. And they did. They wrote a really cool song that's on the record. So 
uh, and, and making that record was great. I loved it. It was a super fun experience. Well, you guys get credit for doing a good job on the album, but I think there's more to it. That's a hugely significant record in Warren's history. It's some of his most personal material. It's the Spots of Time song, which he wrote with Phil and, and played with the Almonds. He chooses to do that there. Which is um, a great song. What's that? That's a, that's a great song. I love the chord changes in that. And he chose to do all this with you. He did Graham Parsons' tribute song. I mean, do you get to smell the roses on that, or is it just another project? I mean, that that he's a big player in our scene, and he was smart enough to choose Railroad Earth to, to well, do this significant we, what record. We got from it is um, you know we definitely crossed over with some different with some his fans have come out now come out to see us. Nice. Um, the, the experience of making the record was really great because we didn't we were not a, we were not made uh, aware of any of the songs until we got into the studio. Like he never he didn't send any demos or anything. So he would sit down and we would we would track a song. He would come into the control room with an acoustic guitar and play the song for us, and we would make charts for us like chord charts. And uh, I always had John make John Ski and make mine because he's better at it and faster. I was like John, you make you make yours and I'll copy it. <laughs> Warren Keynes is perfectly capable of making a demo tape and sending it in advance. Do you think that that was at all a calculated decision to get more of your impulse? One hundred percent. That's the only reason that. Okay. Was. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. I'm not a musician. I'm just. Well, a no, no. That was just a, a fan. He, was, he wanted it. I mean, not. <clears throat> when, I mean, most of those songs were three at most four takes, um, and I can say with one hundred percent accuracy that. All of my playing came, first take. came from first take, yes. single take stuff. It's well documented. Yeah, and, uh, and he's one take Tim. Well, only because it was just you know you're living in the moment, and a lot of times like, like when I'm producing a record, okay, I'm I'll take my initial production notes on listening to the songs for the first time, and I'm it's straight business. Eight, nine times out of ten, that's what I'm going with. My first impression is usually the first one is usually the best one. I mean, just I'm not saying that because I'm trying to blow my own horn or anything. It's just the reality of it. It's like what I I'll, I go back and listen to several other times, but I usually wind up deferring to my original notes. And he gets a little political, and particularly beat down the dust. And I notice you inject kind of a little Latin flavor into that song as well. Is that a connection at all? Well, he had, it, um, it's kind of I think white that dominance. was one of the songs that we that Carrie didn't play drums on. He had his percussionist from. Uh, the Almonds, whose name is... Um, Mark Quinones? Yeah, Mark Quinones, fantastic. And I, I think that might have had a, a reason. There's just something about how, how we approached it, and that sort of just kind of fell that way. I mean, the song sort of leads you in that direction a little bit as far as how it's arranged. He's. I got to one time, you know how the Almonds, you sometimes get to hang in the back? You know how they let people on stage? And you can't really hear that well? But the beauty of it is to watch Quinones play. He drove that band. The guy's a monster. Oh, he's a great player. Are you kidding? He plays with a buddy of mine pretty regularly. Uh, my my piano, piano player friend of mine, Benny Harrison. He's a you know that he and Mark are friends. So. Is there cello on Blue Maiden's Tale? Is that cello on there? No, that's uh, baritone violin. And that's you too. That's me. Yeah. Is that a challenge playing that? Is that a larger violin or the same size violin? Well. I kind of made it up. It's like it's just a set of strings that you get. It's an octave below, and so I, I put mine. I have a I had a viola that I had that somebody gave me, and I put the baritone uh, violin strings on a viola. So it's a larger body, so it has a slightly deeper tone, but it has its own baritone violin is its own thing. It's got it's it's like a it's a little throaty. It's sort of like a it's it's cello like, but it has a th- like a throatier sound. It's not as deep because it can't because it doesn't have the you know, it doesn't have the volume of the body to mm-hmm. produce that. 
Gives it a little oomph. Yeah, doesn't have it. But it has its own thing. I love playing Has the Celtic influence always been there for Railroad Earth, or has that grown over the always years? <clears throat> but it's more pronounced now, is it not, or no? I don't know. Particularly on the last record, I thought. Oh, no, the Sessions thing that you put out since the last record. I hear Celtic all over that. Well, it's Celtic all over my playing, so, you know, and also Indian classical and uh, jazz. And Do you listen to Indian music? All the time, yeah. What's some of your favorite? Um, my guru is, uh, is a... Uh, Serengi player named uh, Ustad Sultan Khan and it's a funny thing the first time I played with Derek Trucks the, and the first time I mm-hmm. actually sat down and listened to him like live and I watched what he was doing I went up to him backstage and I was like you listen to Ustad Sultan Khan oh my god you sealed yourself with him forever you must have loved said, that and he said he's my guru <laughs> and I was like He's my guru too. So you guys must be forever bonded because because of that. It's not every so. musician that can pick that out with Derek. Yeah, yeah I would yeah. think so. Yeah. That was at um, T Dogs Harvest. Harvest, Fest. yes, yes. Another friend of the show. And, and Bob his birthday was at that it? show too. He Bob Weir played that show too. That same show. That was. I love Bobby. He's one of my favorite musicians in the world. Yes, Rob. We that was know. a rough. That was a rough time you period. Say, for Bobby. Uh, that was not you, a good. show. You say Bob Weir more than I say uh, something that starts with yam and ends with ooze. You say Bob Weir more than I say fuck. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, maybe. And he's from New York. <laughs> oh, a few more things we haven't talked about. Last of the Outlaws, which is the last CD, not counting. I don't know. Do you count the sessions thing? Hell yeah. Is that you a formal? I didn't even know new, about this it. This new record that's coming out right now. Oh, wait, wait till you see the video. Okay, talk to me. Um, we're doing a. Uh, we have this song that Todd wrote called um, "Add in My Voice." It's essentially a protest song. Um, uh, I'm adding my voice to the voice of the people who are filled with disgust. Uh, you know, um, and timely, so, totally. And so we, uh, our current management, Alex Brawl and the Seven S. Uh, management out in Denver. They, he has a, 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 fa- a friend who's at, at, right at that same moment was making this documentary about, um, you know, essentially populism. Not necessarily Trump, or they, did, but also like populism around the world, including in France and in other places around the world. Uh, all black and white. Um, and uh, so, yeah, the video is essentially him. Uh, he he does this documentary in black and white, and and he's got footage right at the at at the uh, the women's marches all around the country in various places. He's got footage from uh, you know the one in D.C., the one in Denver. He he's got footage um, of just everyday people, uh, also people you know from both sides, and also. Um, the, he, they, they had they have footage in the video from Marcone winning the election in Paris, like really close footage. I mean, like he's 
20 yards away from McCone as he goes wow. out in front of the pyramid at the Louvre to, you know, and it's all of this. It's just really, really great. And it's, we, he, he agreed to like edit, edit uh, some of the footage from this, which is eventually going to be a documentary into this, into our, uh, into the song. And so the video oh, wow. is coming out next week. The single was just released Friday. It's past Friday. And this, the, the single, the, the video is going to be released, I believe on Monday or Tuesday. So we'll uh, we'll we'll put that out there as um, a teaser for this because that that will come out way before this does. Yeah. So yeah. Now absolutely. when you're uh, you're about serving the song, but then you're in the studio with Railroad Earth, who's about stretching, and you guys decide to do the name of the song was uh, "All That Is Dead May Live Again," face with a hole, where you really stretch and really is one of your more would you say adventurous tracks in the history of the band. Well, it takes up a whole side of a vinyl record. It's a it's a opus essentially. It's more than those two songs. It's five six songs all put together. But is it ever a conundrum for you to, to do an opus like that? We've the only whole... average played it the whole opus live, I think, three times. Because hmm. it takes up about 22 minutes of a show to do it all. It's like 22, 25 minutes, something like that. And, uh, but yeah, so we do, the, the, the song does have other... It's that time, yeah. It's, okay. four. it's a little after four. Okay, good. I don't have to... My th- People aren't coming till six, but because my phone is going off over there, and usually when it's going off repeatedly, somebody's like, "Where the hell is that guy? <laughs> I need to talk to him now." <laughs> and, uh, oh, sorry, sir. And uh, yeah, okay, we're good. Um, yeah, and so that song, um, the opus was a trip to make, man. I mean, to, to record that. I mean, there were there were sections where we couldn't, we literally couldn't like stop and like edit. Like we had to play, like the the instrumental elements of those those three songs in a row. That we had we had to like play those things through. And we're not working on a click track, and there's tempo changes, and everything has to come off just right, you know. And essentially, that's all live. There's no that those the center section of that of the opus is is that's live. That's just a whatever take we wound up deciding was the best take. That's it. There's no like going in and messing with it. And then the other stuff is kind of edited in, but we had to make it so we had to play it, and we all did. We did record all the songs in the same day. Like, like here we're doing the opus, and here it is, and here's how we're doing it. We had to kind of make a map on how to make that really happen and do it successfully. And it was uh, it was a really interesting process. And I don't know that anybody. I mean, obviously a lot of prog rock bands will do that, and there's like whole bands have whole. Uh, size albums, but I'm not sure in the Jambeard world is much of that really that much of that going no, on. Most. I mean, the Disco Biscuits uh, have their said Mantis, well. but yeah, it's very few, very few. There's, yeah, there's a few. Yeah, uh, nobody in the string band world, I don't think. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I noticed on the DVD Red Rocks, nice DVD that you guys did. Uh, you play with horns a little bit. Oh yeah, that's my buddy Jay Ratman. I use him on a bunch of my records I produce. So he's a brilliant arranger from uh, from Pennsylvania. He lives in my neck of the woods. You really have to trust your sound man to have horns sit in, right? Because instruments can get drowned out if it's not mixed just right, right? Mike Partridge is is a genius, so yeah, he's, he's been with you guys for ever. First time for he was he's, we've never had another sound man. Matter of fact, we picked him up on the way to Telluride. We picked him up at the St. Louis airport. He's from Atlanta, isn't he? He's from Atlanta, yeah. yeah. Originally from uh, Maryland via Alabama, roll tide, and then and, and occasionally tide. and occasionally he. Um, he uh, subs for uh, Oliver Wood as a lookalike, but, you know, just yeah, occasionally. Just, I have a great picture of the two of them together, and you go like, doppelganger. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure when back in the day, back in like 96, 2000 and whatnot, he was, they would 
Oh, people. totally, because they both had. Now, now, now Mike, uh, Mike has short hair. Yeah. Back then, you had the same. Literally, yeah, their the hair was the same length, ponytail, yeah, thinness of the hair. It was it was they have other Atlanta roots. Johnny Grubb, who replaced uh, Dave Van uh, Dave Van Dolan, he was from Atlanta. That's correct. And then, um, in your band now, from Blue Ground Undergrass and uh, and the Code Talkers, Andrew Altman. That's right. Andrew also happened to be a Florida State Seminole and uh, someone that I went to college with. Oh, whoa, whoa. How about that? Yeah. He's whoa, a re- whoa, whoa. Yeah, whoa, whoa, whoa. <laughs> I'm a Gators fan, so I like him. And thank you for joining us today, Tim. It was a pleasure. That's rounding up because I'll go on. Can we just talk David Bromberg? Yes, you can talk David It's Bromberg. my nerdball wheelhouse. Well, hold on. Wait, wait, hold on, hold on, hold on. We're talking. We were talking about. We were talking about T Dog. Were you part of the David Bromberg round thing with that he Curtis did? Birch and JJ Gray? I wish I was. No, God, I wasn't. I, I, the feel only like thing I've ever done outside of like anything that T Dog, any of his festivals, was uh, two years ago. I did his Christmas benefit with right. Colonel Bruce yep. and and uh, Jim Lauderdale and uh, and pretty much the you know the Atlanta elite. Well, we'll get to Bromberg then. Talked about Colonel Bruce for a minute. You say you you got some time with Colonel Bruce, right? I did. He guessed my he guessed my birthday. He first guessed that I was a Scorpio, and I kind of chalked that up to like, okay, we'll need one out of twelve shot for that one, I guess. But he guessed my birthday, right? Were on you the, thinking the date when he guessed it? Because I, I think was. It, that's a mind reader thing. Because he guessed mine, and then the next time I thought something different, and he guessed wrong. So I think that was a mind reading. Thing. No, he, I was totally had my I had the date right in my head. Yeah, and then he. He got it. So I don't know. He's, a, he's you know, he, I, there's some people that say that that's kind of like parlor trick stuff. And it might be because, and I know he has like set pieces that he'll do, he'll do with yes. people, like almost like a, com, like a comedian does. When yeah. it, but it's a bit, because it's Colonel Bruce, it always works and it's, it's, it's great. And I feel like, I mean, like for instance, I, I had played with him like three times on Jam Cruise or wherever the hell it was. And, Never really introduced myself, and in those kind of situations, you're coming on and off stage, and everything kind of happens really quickly, and, and you don't necessarily have. It's not a it's not necessarily a quality hang time, you know. So, uh, at one point, I guess the third or fourth time I played with him, I'm sitting backstage somewhere with him, and I'm just saying, you know, Colonel Bruce, I know we played together, but I've never really introduced myself. I said, my name's Tim Carbone. I play with Railroad Earth. I shook his hand, and he was like, he's shaking my hand. And he looks at me, he's like, I know you. I've known you for centuries. <laughs> <laughs> That's a good sign. <laughs> I was like, oh, okay. <laughs> I would think you guys would bond over Vassar Clements. We never talked about it, but I know I played with Vassar many times, and Vassar was a great, huge influence on me, obviously. And, uh, you know, he's, he's just another one of those guys. That's how I'm. Want to live my life? I want to be, and that's kind of how it's. It, it, it's it's really beautiful being in the jam band scene because, um, you know, I'm 60 years old, and it doesn't it doesn't really matter. Uh, it, most people just like the idea that you play music and you and you're and you dedicated to what you do and they enjoy what you're doing, and that's all. That's all you really, you know, as long as you're out there playing. There's a lot to love about the jam band scene, but they can be chatty during the shows these days. You notice that? You notice any more chatting than 10 years ago? Yeah, mostly chatty. On the East Coast, more more than the West Coast, Ugh, but it it's definitely me. very chatty. Anything we can do about that? You know the band The Slip, what yeah, they'll do... Shut the Fuck Up. The Slip will just play quieter and quieter and quieter. And they even wrote a song called The Shouters that I think was mocking those people, and they played very quietly. And Is there anything we can do? Um, I think it's a... You know, the audience is going to have to self-police itself. Yes, but then you turn into the asshole. If you ask someone to be quiet... Then you become the asshole because you want to hear the artist of the person's name is on the ticket. Yeah, I know. I mean, it's it's a difficult thing to do. And I'll be honest with you, I did like I I'm, I've been that guy. I actually had 
uh, I love the Wood Brothers, and we were lucky enough to have them op- open for us at Red Rocks uh, a couple of years ago. And I really wanted to just see their whole set, you know. And so I'm out there sitting in the audience in the VIP section, and there are these two young guys, and they had one guy shows up at, in the middle of the first song, and they're all talking. Hey, this, I'm thinking, okay, I'm gonna let this calm down. They just they hadn't seen each other in a while. They're gonna do this thing, and everything's gonna be fine. But they just kept talking and talking. Yeah, when and talking. it goes on and on and on. And somewhere in the mid, middle of like song three or four or something, I realized that this is not gonna change. And so I finally leaned over and I just grabbed one guy by the shoulder and I said, I said, please. I've been waiting for a long time to see this show. I love these guys. And this is going to be this is a moment that's never going to happen again and I'm going to I want to encourage you to enjoy this moment with this band. It's a nice way of putting it. And 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 I want to enjoy it too. So if you guys could maybe not you know not talk during it that'd be great. And so, and they, they shut right the hell up. In New York that wouldn't happen. <laughs> All right, before we run out of time, David Bromberg, do you remember the first time you met you met him? Yep. Is that predate Railroad Earth? By a million years. Is that right? So are you the reason that he was aware of Railroad Earth initially? Probably not. Where did you first meet him? We did a short tour with him, like five or six dates. The Blue Sparks from Hell opened for David Bomberg Band back in uh, 1979. Which is great because you saw that he does mix up his shows. He does do things completely differently. That's great. You can even see the same song two nights in a row can be completely different. That's no BS. That's true. He had two great fiddle players in the band. He had a great horn section. He had uh, had Lance Dickerson, the drummer from uh, Commander Cody at the time, for like those early Cody records, he played drums. Uh, and he's a great guy, super, super open, fun guy. He's even back then, and I mean, I've, I've now become friends with him. And I went to his, you know, I went to his 60th birthday party. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I've been to his house. I've hung out. He has the largest collection of American-made violins mm-hmm. in the world. Hey, we can go beyond that. He is considered by some to be largely responsible for American violins getting credit. It used to be all about the Europeans, and he's focused on the American ones, right? Would you agree? Oh, he's not. Yeah, and and he is considered in the in the one of the top violin appraisers in the world as far as having knowledge about what it is he has in his hands. So, do yeah. you guys get really deep talking violins? Really, we thick? do. He sold me a Chinese violin by uh, out of a the the actual because in China they'll make uh, they do like a lot with like the Cremonan violin makers made they would the 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 actual guy would probably more. Uh, supervise as opposed to actually make the instruments and like they would have multiple carvers carving and doing this and then he would you know so um, and these Chinese uh, shops have the same thing but this he sold me an, an instrument made by like the guy that won the grand prize like five years prior and it was an actual instrument that this guy actually made himself and unfortunately, the neck is sagged on it, and I can't play it right now. Oh. I'm getting it fixed, but uh, he sold you a lemon, David. Hmm. Uh, you know what it is? It's a, it, I, I'm not in my studio all the time, and the temperature changes. Oh, and you got to talk to Mike about that. And it can happen. You know, I have to figure out a way to get around that. So, was Newly Highway Blues your idea to, to cover, or it was Andy? Actually, Andy Gesslings. Is that right? Suggestion. I've had. You know, I've, my, my my big cover and arrangement. Suggestion was doing uh, Tom Waits' Cold Water, bluegrass style. That nice. was my, that was my idea. And do I you guys ever do that anymore? Da, 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 and that was like, da, yeah. You used to do it, right? Oh, we still do it. Yeah. Oh, you still do. Right. They're doing it tonight. I'd love to hear either one of those maybe. tonight, Newly or Cold Water. That's not going to be Newly, but Cold Water maybe. Don't, I don't know. I don't so know. when Bromberg sits in, do you surrender the stage to him? Does he take over? 
Because um, he does this thing where he'll call out the solos. Yeah, yeah, no, yeah. They do much. it again that like Greg did to you, but yeah, he'll yeah, do yeah. it again and again and again and no, again. Yeah, pretty much that's how he does it, yeah. Did you just play the big thing up in Wilmington, or is that coming up? We are not on it this year. We did the oh. we did, did the inaugural one. Right. So now do you invite him on stage, or is it just implied? Or we, how does in, it... we invited him on stage for that, which was totally awesome. It was great. Yeah, and... Uh, well, Andy goes and plays with him like whenever, whenever. I mean, he's played with Bromberg as a guest soloist, like in San Francisco and Denver, and whenever he right? plays in New York area. Yeah, he and he and Andy are play more together because Andy's more. I mean, I'm you know, I he likes my fiddle playing, but I'm like I say, I'm not a bluegrass fiddle player. I just play one on TV. I'm just a I'm just a violin player. I mean, I play right. all kinds of stuff, and I like to play all kinds of stuff all within one song. <laughs> Well, Railroad Earth fans, David Bromberg, the blues, the whole blues, and nothing but the blues. Check it out, especially the version of Delia. If you're a Railroad Earth fan, you hear Larry Campbell and David Bromberg doing this Delia, it will melt you. But let's end with this. We have two musician friends. Well, they're more friends of Tim's, and I've met them, but Tim knows them well, who are ailing, uh, named Buddy Cage and David Nelson. Could you talk about each of them? And I want to point out that there are funds uh, out there to help each of them. We will tweet them out when this episode is released if you're fans of either of them they could use your help right now david nelson I'd and tweet buddy cage out right the hell now because if you wait too long well i'll tweet them out today and then again yeah. when this episode is yeah. released um yeah well david nelson i met uh, david uh for the first time um playing with uh we uh we opened for them in baltimore the david nelson band and that's the same that's the very first time i met uh barrett Sless too and it was probably back in 2002. Back when they were based out of Baltimore, weren't they, for a while? I think they were. That's right. Yeah, I think they were. And um, man, it was great. And I, I mean, I was a, always a big fan of uh, New Rise of the Purple Station. Buddy Cage, I've actually produced him. I've actually recorded him on a, a great uh, band out of Philadelphia called Boris Garcia. He's on their mm-hmm. first record. I've done three records with them. And... Um, and I've always loved Buddy's playing, and I go back. I go back with Buddy's playing before New Rise of the Purple Sage when he was in uh, Great Speckled Bird with Ian and Sylvia <coughs> Tyson. He does. There's this great record called Great Speckled Bird, and on it there's a there's a great song called. You can either either love or hate Sylvia's voice. She's kind of like Iris Dement. Ah. Like, if you want to drive somebody crazy, I would say put a put a band together with Iris Dement. And and Sylvia Tyson because people would just go, their heads would explode. Well, I call them SDS, small okay. dose singers. Okay, a little yeah. here and then on to yeah, someone yeah, else. Yeah, they yeah, go yeah. back I, to them. I get that totally. I love you, Iris, but, but yeah, little pieces. That's yeah. why I never go see her live. Right, exactly. And so, but she does this great song on that record called "Truckers Cafe," and the, the guitar player in that band is an amazing guitar player named uh, Jeff uh, Jeff Muldor. No, not not Jeff Mulder. This guy that played with Jeff Mulder, Amos Garrett. I'm gonna say I've heard of Jeff Mulder. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's Maria's brother, Maria Mulder's brother. But his the guitar player that was from that Boston scene, uh, you know, with the you know, uh, he played in that whole scene since the '60s. But the guitar player is Amos Garrett. He's really slick, slinky stringed. Uh, one of those guys that played a Telecaster, but real slinky stringed, like yeah. kind of like a Clarence White, but not in a country style. 
Really, really cool, great player. But there's a solo on there where he and Buddy Cage do this thing where they answer each other. First, they trade eights and they trade fours, and then they're trading like, and they're going back and forth, and it's mixed in stereo, so it kind of they all intertwine, and it's this thing. It's like amazing. It's like the first time I heard it, it was like there's a period towards the end of the solo where you can't tell who's doing what, and one guy's playing the guitar, and the other guy's playing the pedal steel, and it's just awesome. And that's like I was I was looking at the, I'm looking at the cover, and I'm like, who's this steel player? Oh, Buddy Cage. And like a year later, he's in Net New Rise of the Purple Saves. And I was like, wow, that's that guy. He's freaking awesome. <laughs> yeah. He is. Well, thank you so much for your time, Tim. It's my pleasure. We appreciate it. And thank uh, you for all the music and uh, re-inspiring Phil Lesh. I hear Phil just shows up at your gigs and sits in. Well, many years ago. Sometimes unannounced, right? Yep. He's ha- that's happened before. <laughs> You say no to Phil? Would you say no to Phil if he wanted to sit in? Well, the first time he sat in, I didn't know. He was, no one knew he was all of a sudden. He was there, and he's in like one of the dressing rooms at the whatever club we were playing in San Francisco. I can't remember now. But I walk in. and Great American Music Hall? No, it was the other one. The, Bimbo's? The, the one that's like kind of a big open black box. That's not the one. It's in the Mission. It's in the Mission. Oh, I'm blanking. So but I walk on. into the dressing room and... I look, and there's Phil Lesh standing there, and he's like, "Hi, I'm Phil Lesh," and I'm like, "I know who you are." <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. Yeah. Thank you so much, Tim. All right, guys. Thanks. Take care. Say the word, and I'll come running. Tim Carbone, ladies and gentlemen. Tim Carbone. And that's the way it was. Hotel Indigo overlooking Atlanta Plains Landing. I guess, well, some of them are Atlanta Plains, the Delta ones. Right? <laughs> that's really funny. It's just I'm thinking of like, oh, yeah, we've got, you know, the Plains of Georgia, the Delta Plains. And it's like, no, you're talking about like the Delta Airline Plains. That's funny, Rob. That's funny. So Seth's the been Southwest so Plains. Seth's got the coffee blues. He spilled all over himself, stained his little red shorts, but he shall not be moved. Right, Seth? I shall not be moved. We had a little Seth emergency to, that had to be attended to between segments, and he did. He is a warrior. Right, Seth? I am. How are things going with you? Do you, do you, you got to learn to breathe sometimes, right? Do you need any volunteers for any stuff coming? What What do you have coming up in your world? Well, we have Imagine Festival, and we have Huluween. Those are the final wet events of the season. Do you still need volunteers for Huluween? Absolutely. For both events, work exchangeteam.com. Check it out, folks. All right. Right on. Oh, Lord. Send me to that website. <laughs> 
Uh, hey. So what do we have coming up? Next episode will be Denny Wally, the man who John Fishman gauzed at, and this is from shortly after the gauzing at the Hampton 70, and then also the full interview with Weitzer Panic's John Bell. The full, which uh, he starts off kind of not he really. Does, he seems hesitant, and he says anything for the colonel. Doesn't seem all that thrilled to be there. It seems to be doing for the colonel, but by the end of it, Seemed to have a good time, even though we got into one a couple uncomfortable areas. He was he was affable. He appreciated our curiosity and and respectful. I mean, we shut up pretty well that interview, right, Seth? Because that's tricky with people who take their time to speak. The it can be a, a temptation as an interview to get in there, and, but you know, on podcasts you can have it's long form radio. We can have space. We have time for the pause. Right, Seth, what are you doing over here? Is the emergency recurring? Yeah, it's just I've got a client that has an issue, and uh, our senior uh, counselor for the software is unavailable to assist. So, Baby, what's wrong with you? Well, and the main thing is the client um, has slacked and is two, about a week and a half, two weeks behind on getting their Since they've people, laid their burden down? Their money back. Oh, and gosh. so now the client's you know, in a rush to get it done. Which I understand. I mean, they're, but you know, that's why you get it done right away. Anybody can throw a festival these days. Well, anyway, um, as we said, that's right, I said anyway. You did. As we said previously, Tim was very nice to give us some music. So I'd like to point out all the music that you hear on the episode is from the contribution, except the very last track will be Raven's Child from the new Railroad Earth EP, Captain Nowhere. The two songs you heard earlier were This Too Shall Pass and Wilderness in Space. These are from the soon-to-come contribution album. You can can hear four tracks from the coming contribution album on Spotify. But Contribution on Spotify. This is really good stuff, and he gave us this exclusive track. Seth just kindly played it for us, and I was knocked out. I love the trumpet in that. Well, it starts mellow and plaintive, and then it kind of builds to a jazzy thing with, uh, what do you call it, echo lines or, you know, with a... Throwing back and forth and and mimicking their lines and building and energy builds. And then it ends in like a Beatlesque. Very much so. Jazzy Beatlesque kind of thing. A little day in the life-ish, right? Yeah, but a little jazz side of it, which made it more more appealing to me. Yeah, the way the trumpets were were playing was like the George Martin to another level, you know? It was like more on the jazz side of what George Martin was doing. That that was just, I've heard heard it once, people. That Mm -hmm. was my initial. uh, I like it. Yes. I like it, and I hope you do too. And so the other the other contribution music that I, that we listened to, remember in advance, we were digging it too. Absolutely, yeah. It's a. I keep saying, you know what? I'm going to retire that word, folks. Here it is. You're not going to hear me say absolutely. You had me saying it. I, I said it a couple times in the heavy. Metal I'm done interview. saying absolutely. I, I'm I'm trying to disavow myself of anyways, and I have a couple other obnoxious things. Of course, we could always go in and edit those things out, but we don't do that, folks. We give you the raw. Yeah, we want we we're not looking to make friends. We're not looking for you to think we're smart or polished. We're looking to entertain you, bitches, because there's like eighteen thousand things on the internet, and not eighteen thousand listeners here yet. So. Actually, there's more than eighteen thousand. No, that's oh, that's listens, not listeners. It's a difference. Oh. So here it is from the soon to be released contribution CD. I don't, I don't even know if, if do we have the title of the CD. I didn't. Th- the songs were the titles on Spotify. It did not give an album title, so maybe it's still a working work in progress. But this song, Seth, would you like to? So long, farewell. And that is the name of the song. Oh, 
I wrote the song while I was on the phone Calling you, but you're not home I heard the phone go beep, beep, beep I put the water on to make some tea And while I watched it steep Still not home, you're not home Then thoughts of you drifted up Like steam from the cup It disappeared in the air You're not there So I wrote the song But I was on the phone You're not home Thank you. 
Give the raven child A box of stars Toss to the heavens High and far For the firmament Find the to unfurl Before the astounded eyes Of the world Was the same fate So I've been told For the sun and the moon We tonight behold All those years Without a trace In that secret place Hidden from the eyes of the world Of the world. 